You're listening to the Opie and Anthony channel on Sirius XM. The Ron and Fez show starts. Come on. Now!
get down to it, boppers. Yeah, let's get down to it, boppers. It's the Run and Fez show on a Friday. Friday. Uh, Friday, so that starts the weekend for you. Last night, Chris? Yeah, I had a couple. Well, maybe more <laughs> than a couple. Because, you know, technically midnight, Friday, fun Friday, drinks, cocktails. I think it's turning into a problem. And if you think I'm going to sit here and watch you destroy yourself, you've got another thing coming. I love you too much to watch this happen. I love the bottle. I need another, this is another sip. That's terrible. That's an awful one, thing to say. One more. I love the bottle is awful. Uh, little Mo, you're in here today. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I saw you enjoying the Spinner's music quite a yeah, bit, I and did. knowing all the lyrics. Now, did you know at one point they were called the Detroit Spinners? I did not. My best friend's name is Earl, and he's black, really black, and he told me that. Wow. Then again, he lies, so I could <laughs> not tell you the truth. Uh, but yeah, he always tells me they were the Detroit Spinners. Maybe we can look that up. Uh, vintage Shelb, if you get the opportunity, see if you can see if they were once known. Fez, you get on it as well. Chris, you grab it. Uh, I'm going to make sure we'll find out exactly what they were called. Um, I got Detroit yeah. Spinners. Thank you. Wow. So what I told you, what I got from Earl, was 100% correct. Why did like they drop the name? Who knows? I guess they just couldn't hold it anymore. There was already the Detroit Wheels, Mitch Ryder's band. Um, hey, there's our Fez Watley. But uh, a lot of times for me, Earl is my Jamie Foxx. And what? he and I ride around. I speak German. We're in this tooth wagon. And he's my straight-up Jamie Foxx. So, like, you bought him? No, he's a human being, much like you and I. I was just thinking, you know, like the movie, Django. I didn't see it. Is it any good? Wait, you haven't seen it? No. It's great! From what you're telling me, it sounds like Quentin Tarantino ripped off a couple things from me and Earl. Uh, later on in the show, we're doing an Unmasked with Wanda Sykes, who is funny and lovely. In that order. She's funny for a while, then lovely for a while, and then back to funny again. She's got a big show out this win, uh, uh, Her something. What's it called? Her story? Hilarious. 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 It's funny, but funny women. Hilarious. Instead of hilarious. Hilarious. And she does it on the own network. That Oprah's dominating. She is. Oprah is doing so well. She's talking about opening up a line called For Me, By Me. And it's just just for her, and she makes it for herself. That sounds familiar. You know, my old boss, Eric Logan, runs her company now. The guy who brought us in here. Well, when we were just XM. Kind of Before we got together with Sirius, when we used to hate Sirius. Boo! That's what we'd say if someone said Sirius. <laughs> Boo! Though. But now we say yeah because we're on Sirius' side. Yeah! Because the all right, because <laughs> these two enemies who hated each other are now very much in love. Woo, let's 
It's almost as if twins uh, decided to have babies. Twincest. This is a Twincest radio company. Uh, a lot of stuff up on the iBank today, including my favorite thing of all time, the greatest alley-oop in pool history. It's the best thing that's ever happened in the backyard, that these kids could get a uh, an alley-oop that would, I believe, touch seven different people. Backyard pools are about the best thing in the world. Chris Stanley doesn't swim because he was raised in New York City. You don't swim? No, of course he doesn't swim. Look at him. He can run through a fire hydrant, though. I love uh, running through fire hydrants. It's just so refreshing. Because he was born in New York, Chris Stanley doesn't swim Hell and no. doesn't drive. Nope. Or tip. But I have, <laughs> things. I have drunk driven, and I do go to resorts. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe this. This is the craziest thing. He says, I will go to Jamaica. And I'll be gonna, like, but if it's an island, you can't swim. He goes, yeah, but I'll stand up on the dry part. All right, look at this, Chris. You'll see what it's like if you grew up in the suburbs. Oh. This is, look how many kids. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All seven of them touch the ball before he slams it. So sick. Yeah, literally sick. This is what Vine was made for, baby. It really is. And it's really what summer is for. None of these youngsters have met a girl yet, but they're all having fun. Their dicks not, might not be getting wet, okay. but the rest of their bodies on, are in the pool. Favor. Do me a favor and speak with a little class and dignity. All right? You're representing New York today. Just call me Classy Chris. Um, <laughs> okay. I will do that. <laughs> Double C. Um, Thank you. CC me on that. By the way, it was just not Detroit Spinners. They were also called the Motown Spinners. And they had to add those names because there was a British band called the Spinners. I, like I kind of like when bands do that, like got a city on. Like, for example, uh, the New York Dolls, if you will. I love that, too. I love the New York, Do New York Dolls. Uh, L.A. Guns yep. is another one. I Great. was in a band one time. We were called Much Better Than the Beatles. <laughs> and no one... Well, we were from a town called Much Better. Uh, uh, but no. no... I never even thought now. It sounded like we were putting the Beatles down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chris, what is your all-time favorite city meets band name? Chicago. Just... Chicago. Uh, now, you know, that wasn't their original name. It was more. I had no idea. It was the Chicago Transit Authority was the <laughs> entire name of the band. And they decided this is too long. Let's just take it down to Chicago. And now they're traveling as Chirac. At least they're staying current. Yeah. That's why I like them so much. Oh, you got Atlanta Rhythm Section, Boston, Europe. Asia. Mm. I don't like those names as much. I like the something somethings. I like we're from somewhere and we're bringing something. You right, Chris? Yeah. Just taking a lot of stuff out of your pocket. I don't know why I had so many. Th I felt very uncomfortable. I had like four things in one shirt pocket. It seemed like you were going to take all those things off and then crawl off somewhere and die. It just felt like 
you were setting yourself up like when a dog gets hit by a, a car. Um, so much stuff on the iBank. But you brought up something this weekend, Chris, and you're doing this a lot. Yeah. And quite frankly, I wanted to stop now okay. because I want the Interrobang to be a positive site. Yeah. And you're always bringing up a bombs that you think that <laughs> movies are going to bomb. Yeah, yeah. And you actually put up a thing. Ryan Reynolds could be in two bombs this weekend. <laughs> yeah, it's it's because of tracking, track because everyone's just tracking theater uh, movies now. I don't know what you mean by that. They'll still like uh, they'll basically predicting what these movies are going to make by word of mouth and by uh, pre-screenings. They feel that R.I.P.D. the movie he's in with uh, Jeff Bridges mm-hmm. is, isn't tracking well, so it could bomb this weekend. It could not make that much money. And he is also doing a voice in some animated film that I hadn't even heard of called Turbo. I did see the commercial for Turbo. It's a snail that does speed and runs fast. Sounds kind of cool, actually. It is. It's maybe one of the best things I've ever seen. <laughs> and they're saying that uh, Despicable Me 2 is looking like it's going to beat up on Turbo. And that... The way this Despicable Me 2 is going, yeah. I think there's going to be a Despicable Me 3. I think it's going to do well. I don't, I don't know if they're going to... I think they, they tied everything up at the end of this last one. It's already made over $200 million, and all it is is just drawings. Well, they th- they're thinking uh, Ryan Reynolds' animated film is not going to do too Why much. no love for Ryan Reynolds? He seems like a, a nice enough guy. He got- I saw him once in here. He he came in when I was doing it on Mass. I think he might have done an O&H show. Um, he was, yeah, he was with um, George Michael from... He was with Jason Bateman, Jason- not George Michael from Wham, if that's where you're going <laughs> with this. I think people just look at him and just say, you know, why? You know, like, I could... Do that, but why? I, I mean, think there's he, other movies coming I, out. It's just like I think you're cruel. <laughs> I think he's a very fine actor, and some people just tend to wish certain people met. Now, good. He got too popular too quickly, and everyone thinks he's Van Wilder. They've associated that one role to his personality. That was a long time ago. But people, I think people still do it. They still see Ryan Reynolds like, oh, there's Van Wilder. He's a dick. I don't have any problem with the man. I had to send, uh, and this was when I was in New York, two interns to Van Wilder to when it was shot. And they ended up having sex. And the girl's uh, boyfriend came in and fought on the air. Remember that, Fez? Oh, yeah. Yep. The two interns did? No, they sexed it up. And they turned the on show On assignment. Yeah, on assignment. <laughs> they were on assignment. And we probably ended up not hearing a, from them as they were at the grand opening of that, which they did in some shitty, like, Panama Beach City and, you know, in the Gulf. Nice. Party town. Yeah. Come on, it's Van Wilder. you got to get the party on. Yeah, that, that was the whole purpose of it. It's like that it's that spring break, point. but it's a movie premiere. Yeah. That was a long time ago. Here's Ryan Reynolds' problem. Okay, hold on, because Watley <laughs> is going to solve this for everybody. I I he it. just <laughs> doesn't fit in very well in different genres of films. If if he does action, because you know he's built like an action star, but he's too goofy to be taken seriously in an action. I'm going to disagree. He did that South African CIA film with Denzel Washington or I forget it was African or South American uh, and he was terrific in it he was really good in it and you then, know the one I'm talking about Chris no oh it's oh, safe house 
safe house, exactly. Now, bad name for that. It was about a house that was supposedly safe, but it wasn't. If I could have renamed it, here's his, here's his problem. I would have named it Unsafe House, starring Van Wilder. Maybe if he changed his name to Van Wilder, everybody would like him better. I think it's because he looks a lot like people that everybody knows that are like jerks. Like he looks like he looks the, the bad he, like, frat. resembles a lot of jerks. Yeah. Yeah, he looks like the bad frat guy. Yeah. Like uh what do they call the good looking guy in a movie? Doucheboat. Thank you. He looks like <laughs> the doucheboat. Like she's with him, but you're like, come on, you could do so much better. But he's not like by by the way, in real life because I saw him walk by when I was doing on a mask. He's incredibly tall and has what I would call a Chris Stanley head. An enormous, wow. frightening Chris Stanley head. It's frightening? It's that large? Dude, I'm looking at your head yeah. and the two interns. <laughs> Their two heads could fit <laughs> safely inside yours. If I was doing some kind of scary, mad scientist thing. I could cut off their heads, cut off the top of yours, and, and hide their heads in there. I'll take that as a compliment. You're, I guess so. <laughs> I think people might hate him, too, because he was able to get it in with Scarlett Johansson and Blake Lively. Maybe at the same time. I can't confirm that, though. <laughs> so he married, by the way, as you say, get it in. He married <laughs> two lovely, talented actresses. Uh, there could be some truth to that, but, you know. I think he's got Alanis Morissette on his list, too. I don't like, I'm not a big fan of the gossip about who dated whose stuff. I think he should be, I think he should have to do more on his work. I wasn't, I was talking about just straight banging, but you can say dating. I, they're married. Yeah. I don't have to say it's dating more than... or banging or anything else. And this has nothing to do with his work. You're Van I'm hoping her. both these movies do well now. They're both $130 million films, so they got to bank it up. Yeah, that's the problem. You, <laughs> you need this thing to be an, an immense hit, a gigantic hit. Uh, coming up in just a little bit. And we're excited about this. Emily Bell That's nice. is going to be here. Uh, Chris Stanley found Emily Bell. That's right. And how exactly did you do it, Chris? Well, every year for South by Southwest, they'll release one song from every participating artist, put it in a one giant file, and then release it to the internet for free. Uh, for a five, I listened through every one of those songs totaling almost like 2,000 or something, seven gigs of of music. I listened through all of them, picked five. Emily Bell was the first one to make that five. Out of, you thought she had the star potential? Yeah, off of uh, the, of one of the, the song that was part of that. Um, back, to the way I, back to the way it was. This would maybe, when she gets in here, I think this would make a better story. We tell the same story. Yeah. Only I did it. Oh. And... I'll ask you, how did this happen? Yeah. And you point at me and say, the man with the golden ear. And I just turn around and I point my <laughs> ear at her. You know? Yeah. And that would sound a lot better. Okay. So giving you all the credit. Yeah. For fighting Miss Bell. Right. Mm. 
Why is that such an awful thing? You know, let me just point something out. Yeah. David Letterman has writers, but when he gets a big laugh, you don't hear, Hey, I wrote that! That was... <laughs> that that would be wrong. That would come out a little weird. Now, SiriusXM pays you. Yeah. And pays you handsomely. I don't think it would be so <laughs> awful for you to take your experiences yeah. and hand it to your immediate supervisor, Ronnie B. <sighs> Just do him a solid. All right, well, no rock yeah. star wants to hear, oh, I was uh, found by the guy's producer. <laughs> you want to hear found by. Well, if you know, if it makes Emily feel better... I'll do it, sure. All right. So well, it I makes just, us all feel better. Oh, all of us feel better. All right. Make me feel better too, you know. No one ever likes. Oh, how did uh, how was Elvis Presley discovered? Yeah. Well, the producer of the show handed it to the disc jockey. No, <laughs> no one likes that story. I hate that story. They want the man with the golden ear. Yeah. They get all the credit. Okay. Matter of fact, when she gets in here, yeah. I want you gone. You can't even be in the room. I don't want you get even this. I don't want you because you you you're a credit grub. You're just trying to grub on my credit. I'm not trying to grub any credit. It's just how it happened. Here's how it happened. Okay. I gave you an assignment. True. We never needed to pull back the curtain. I could have just simply said. Hey, I've decided out of the 2,000, here are five great songs. I didn't hear, And I remember I did say that, and then I heard this. I'm the one who did it. <laughs> I listened to all of them. I'm going to watch Saturday Night Live and see a guy walk out and go, like the sketch? I wrote it. They're all acting it out. But it's out of this brain. But I built the set. <laughs> I made that costume. Oh, yeah, that's right. This guy built the set. They're good. They Look should... at me. I'm, I'm I'm operating a camera. <laughs> Everybody needs credit. Huh, Chris? You can't even hear the sketch. <laughs> no, it's no nothing. To sound, starting to sound bad now. Yes, because you turned out to be an awful person. I make bad Who decisions. Who griped about that assignment the whole time he was doing it. Oh, please. Did he really? Oh, I have to go listen to another 1,200 songs tonight. It's, it was a lot of listening there. I didn't know that you didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed finding the artists that made the list. But you listened through a lot of bad music right there, dude. Well, I'm so glad that Emily Bell is coming in for this. That's nice. You you actually turned me into a fan of hers. So she's going to perform a couple songs uh, live for us. Uh, and John Evans, the guitar player from the band, is going to be here as well. And they're somewhat of a, a team. Oh, yeah. They work very well together. Put out this in Technicolor. Yeah. But he's willing to call this Emily Bell. Yes. He doesn't have your <laughs> weirdness. I guess Just do me a favor. Yeah. When she comes in, uh -huh. I'm going to throw it to you. Yeah. And then you tell the story that I did everything great. Is that too much to ask? <sighs> no. It's not. Perfect. Um, we figured out we're going out to eat soon. And are we talking about going to Greek Town in Queens? That's that's what's been that's what's been happening. That's the word on the street. I worry about Molly. Why? 
Mm, your, your dad wants you home in a safe hour. No, I, I I think I could definitely go to Greek food. That would be. Don't you have to like hold the fort down? Aren't they out of town? <laughs> yeah, if it's if it's before Tuesday, I probably can't go because I need to go home and make sure no one breaks into our house. And, and what are you going to do if they do break into your house? I don't know. Nice them to death. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to nice them to death. What are you going to do? Make them Rice Krispie treats? I don't know. I seriously was like so nervous when the Amber Alert went off. I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do if there's someone in the house. I think I would just <laughs> jump out the window. Oh, Jesus. What floor are you got? Oh, you Seven. On? No, you're not jumping Down. out that window. And we'd have to do a whole memorial show. I mean, we Jesus. have that unmasked. And oh. now we just dig into people's time, really. Um... By the way, the Amber Alert is not to warn homeowners that they're in any kind of trouble. <laughs> We're trying to find a little girl. Not like, oh, there's it a nut sounded, out there grabbing kids. Maybe he'll grab you next. It sounded like my <laughs> household. Oh, I thought you thought they already grabbed one baby. Now they're going to come and grab me. No. Young people, watch yourselves. <laughs> Youth of America, you are not safe. There's someone snatching out there. Alright. Um, I know you got to leave early today, right? You're actually tagging out with Ba. Yeah, you know, I got some stuff. But you can't wait around so that you can accuse him to his face of not giving uh, Fez his sandwich? As much as I'd like to do that, I just don't have the time. Sorry. There's something I'm not trusting about either of these stories. This is getting weirder by the day. Yeah. The only intern I'm even slightly comfortable around is Molly. And that's gotten weird since she got afraid of Amber Alerts. <laughs> she won't let us throw a party at her apartment. She actually tried to text back, is it me? Am I the one that that bad man took? Is, can someone help me? But you seem like you and Bob, there's not enough room in the lifeboat for both of you. Yeah, he's just getting more annoying as the days go by. One. <sighs> All right. Uh, well, lunch sabotage is very annoying. <laughs> yes, I I enjoyed my lunch. <laughs> Always with the sports and the. You know, though I've eaten since, I'm still hungry from that day. I'm still hungry too. And on that day, I remember I had the best lunch. I had an <laughs> egg salad and a grilled cheese. <laughs> Wait a minute. The plot thickens. Yeah, I had a grilled cheese for dessert. Everyone had a grilled cheese that day, but me. God, grilled cheeses are good. My favorite lunch is my lunch and Fez's lunch. <laughs> you knew that I ate the lunch the whole time, right? No. Yeah, that was the joke. That's why I was laughing. I assume that I just didn't get my sandwich, that oh, I didn't, didn't make it onto the order. You were right. You were right. You didn't get your sandwich. And then you turn around and blame that poor boy. Yes, so because there was a sandwich missing. Oh, no, it was eaten. But I thought Shelby ate my sandwich. I ate a sandwich. <laughs> Not the sandwich? No. I don't check my sandwiches for initials. You didn't know that that was me that whole time? No. No, of course it wasn't me. Why well, would like... you do? You're not going to eat a grilled cheese. No, what am I, suddenly four? You know what? I'm going to do that if I'm Benjamin Buttons. I'm going to end up with a fucking grilled cheese in a sippy cup. Mm. You put me in a goddamn high chair like an infant. 
My, I'm glad that all this horrible stuff is fun for you to hear. <laughs> it's so fun. Because it's... Uh, it's tearing this whole thing apart. It is. It's tearing this show apart. i got to get ready for Emily Bell, which means uh, she's going to be playing and singing. Uh, and i got to get you guys out of the way, because I hope she had some point where she just says, Ron, do you want to do a song with me? And you have one ready. That'd be pretty cool. And I've already picked out the song I want to do with her, uh, Leather and Lace, which was done by Don Henley and Stevie Nicks. <clears throat> I think it'll be perfect for the two of us. This is going to be the best thing ever. Um, particularly since it's 30 years older than the music they want to do. <laughs> In Technicolor is the name of it. The big... Uh, early hit is back to the way it was, but we're going to bring her in to Give Me Your Heart. And this is even a song that you hadn't heard. No. Uh, you had only heard the one song, but as we've been going through this album, we're just digging the hell out of it. Hell yeah. Um, when that comes up, you remember to give me full credit, right? Yeah. yeah. You you discovered her. You listened through it. And what's my nickname? Golden Ear. Yeah. The Golden Ear, Miss Bell. Just call me Golden Earring. <laughs> Or just call me Radar Love, and everybody will know what you're talking about. All right. You know Radar Love, don't you? <laughs> right, Emily? You know that. And just play Radar Love when I come in and go, ladies and gentlemen, golden earring. Um, done but, and done. What's that? Done and done. I went from rude and rude to done and done. Um, so this is... I don't know for the golden earring. That choke is a path. I mean, this is actually the time for the for the rock star. The rock star is going to be here. This isn't grab ass time. Oh, no, we're not. We're keeping our hands to ourselves. You make it seem like any kind of gay thing is like Fez is a freak. <laughs> Alternative lifestyle, you know. Fez, even you didn't like the gays from yesterday that were in the audience. No, no, it drove me nuts. They're so. You know, compared to the rest of the population... Normal people is the word you're looking for. There's not a lot of gays, so that when one of us does something annoying, it really, really stands out. Hmm. I don't want to run the guy down even more, but, I mean, I thought gays were supposed to be fashionable when he was wearing Crocs with socks. <laughs> By the way, Crocs with socks might be the name of the album that I'm putting out. <laughs> Will this be a big croc on the album cover? Yeah. That's pretty With cool socks, it is. It's fucking <laughs> badass. And let people know, I don't give a shit. But when you wear crocs like that, and you're going out in the city of New York, it looks you look like a mental patient. <laughs> Maybe that was a mental patient. I wore them to Eastside Dave's wedding. <laughs> yeah. With socks. Mental patient. Twice over. Look, I'm going to tell you something about Fez right now. Tell him, like, just be a second. Okay, I got to finish right. this story. But Fez, and this really freaks me out. Wears socks. Now you have to remember, he's born and raised in Florida. Wears <laughs> socks with flip flops, oh. and he pushes the thing no. around his sock toe. Crazy. There's something oddly comforting about that feeling. No, there isn't. It's the exact opposite. <laughs> always? You just yeah. always wear No, oh, yeah. It would be comfortable to walk around in like a Snuggie, too. I don't do it. <laughs> be comfortable to walk well, around you're with your... you're missing out. You'd be comfortable to walk around with your dick out, but uh, people are going to 
act like, hey, this is unsociable. <laughs> that thing that you do freaks people out. That was the second weirdest thing that you've ever done. What was the first? Wearing a toupee for about a year <laughs> over a perfectly good head. And people around this place used to talk about you. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they got weirded out. Oh my god. Yeah, the Hitler mustache. Did you ever too. wear the, oh, yeah. the uh, toupee and the flip flops and socks at the same time? No. But now that you mention it, <laughs> no. I may try that look this weekend. You won't. Why do you lie? <laughs> I know you're not going to do it. <laughs> All right, Emily Bell. Uh, the new album is called In Technicolor. Uh, as we pull, uh, brought up before, Chris Stanley. Uh, found her in the middle of just a pile of music, which is a really tough thing to do when you're anyone in that pile of music. 2,000 <laughs> songs. Yeah. To have your song jump out, it has to work. Emily Bell is here with uh, John Evans, who is her uh, partner and the guitar player for the band. EmilyBell.com. Check her out. And... Uh, the new album is in Technicolor. This song is from the album in Technicolor. And it is called, what's the name of it again, Chris? Give Me Your Heart. Give Me Your Heart. It's Emily Bell.
That is from In Technicolor, and Emily Bell is in the studio with us, along with John Evans. How you doing, Emily? I'm doing good. How are you doing? It's good to see you guys. I'm glad you brought some Texas heat in with you. We uh, do bring the Texas heat. <laughs> wherever you go. Now, I'll tell you how we first uh, became aware of you. Uh, it was at the South by Southwest, and remember they put that thing online, there was like 2,000 different bands, and Chris Stanley, our producer here, went through and picked out five, just five out of 2,000, <laughs> and uh, your song, of course, was one of them. Yeah, it's, uh, it was seven gigs of music. Seven gigs. <laughs> I spent I spent a week listening all night. Come, <laughs> get home, right? And then I'm just, I guess I have to go through this giant list of songs. Yeah. And then I picked five, and Emily Bell's was the first one I picked. Oh, awesome. man, yeah, awesome. that was awesome. <laughs> that's a that's a quite a long, it's a lot of songs. That's a journey. It that's is, a journey. That must have been journey. emotional for you. Yeah. It's one of those things where you could almost start to hate music after oh, a while. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be careful because you can <laughs> overdose yep. and get into it. But uh, what's it been like now to, to get this album out for you guys? It's been great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've gotten we've gotten a lot of great write-ups and recognition being mm -hmm. here with you guys. I mean, that just kind of shows how that it's going well right. for us you know um it's, it's been a ton of work it's been a lot of work. has it we're, constant we're, work and we yeah. we live together and and so it's just kind of 24 hours a day 24 <laughs> yeah. hours a day what about 24 this? Yeah. 7 and it's one thing to do that as artists but you also have to do it as business people right mm -hmm. these days as well yeah we're you know we're basically running an entire operation we've got now we're on tour Mm -hmm. And um, we got a 38-foot RV that we have been driving from Austin all the way up here. Mm -hmm. uh, with Manhattan's with six, fun. With Manhattan in an RV? Manhattan yeah. in an RV. It, yeah. it was intense. And we drove all night. And <laughs> all night to get here, yeah. Yeah. But no, it's been, it's been great. It's just been a great experience. And um, it's been a lot of work. But it is the... Uh, I mean, it is that thing when you... Uh, when it's about the music, mm -hmm. and the music is, of course, the fun part, the enjoyable part, totally. but then everything that you have to go in to do it now, too. As oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, especially as an independent artist. Yeah. it's Because uh, you you have to compete with the big artists that, that are on the, the major labels. Right. And, and with the way the music business is going nowadays, just about anyone can go in and, and record songs on GarageBand or whatever. So you've got you've to you know work against those guys too yeah so you've got to set the bar for yourself for your career when you're an independent artist you know mm -hmm. it's freeing but it's also you know it's a lot of work well that's the funny thing about it everyone acts like well this is great you can go make music easier than you ever could before uh you know you don't need the record company but at the end of it how do you get that out there so people can hear it know what you're up to and know what you're doing you know Tons of social networking mm -hmm. and, uh, and and you yeah. building building the right team around you basically yeah. and you know paying for things yourself right you know making money off of what you're doing and putting it back into the pot to keep the to keep the wheels turning um, you know obviously the more support you have or backing you have behind a project a lot of times the more exposure you get but at the end of the day it's about your passion and your love for music and how hard you're working that 
you know, will really pay it off in the end. Where do the songs come from? How's this? How's the songwriting work for you guys? The songs come from many different places. For me, this a lot. This a lot of this record came from my experience of you know working really hard in L.A. in California for four years, mm-hmm. uh, songwriting in studios out there, and then deciding to cut the cord and move back, move to Austin, Texas, and um, really find my voice you know put out my own record and right. and do my own thing a lot of that a lot of that is in this record and when john and i hooked up it was just one of those unspeakable sparks that we just kind of ignited each other's creativity it was it was easy to write and she had a lot of material mm-hmm. um to to pull from you know and and uh she came in and it was it was just something basically where where it was finding out what it is she wanted to do and then and then just going for it and my my background is more in like roots rock and that kind of thing mm-hmm. but i grew up on on delta blues and all of that my my mom's from itabina mississippi and so those influences combined with her um kind of soul and r&b background it it, it gelled and it was it worked out really nicely i think mm-hmm. so emily when you were writing in la it was almost writing as craft you were writing songs to sell you know putting them exactly out people. exactly mm-hmm. um just you know writing as a craft and i, I call them my college years because that's really what they were for me you had four years there to yeah get it down exactly yeah. and it is it's the the strangest thing about songwriting is it is craft and it is art and then it's that other mysterious thing you mm-hmm. know the x factor right. yeah that other thing that you're like what the hell just just happened right there and uh it feels like you've been able to do it this time you, it Thank feels you. like the whatever the mystery is you were able to pull together one why don't we do one of those songs what would you like to do for us right now why don't you, you speak crush angel yeah let's do that cool Since I've seen you, well, since the day you fail, you took a fall, you broke a wing, and now it's slow to heal. You took a walk to the edge, and you never looked back, like tunnel vision on a train track. You took a fall, you broke a wing, and now it's slow to heal. Whoa, oh, oh, oh. your defense when your world caved in you took a fall you broke a wing and now you're on the man but in the dark night of the soul you you might find something that'll hold anchor down on the slope and you can't escape whoa oh 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 Crush. 
Technicolor is uh, Emily Bell sitting in with us, uh, John Evans. This sound that you guys have come up with now, it really is a little piece of all these different genres of music that sure. you've, you've yeah. liked over the years. Now, how do you, does it get into your thing of, uh, do you want to keep it simple enough? Or are you worried about getting some of the stuff a little too complex for people? I think, I think you do want to, you know, when I write, when I write about an experience that I've been through, you know, you really want to make it, you want it to come from an honest place, mm-hmm. but you also don't want, I, I personally want to make it as accessible to as many people as possible. Right. So I try to do, I try to guise it in a way where, you know, maybe this person didn't experience what I did in this song, but they can listen to the words and make their own experience out of it right it's got a a, many different layers exactly Mm -hmm. yeah i was listening to that then i'm like well there's there's a lot of uh you know complicated things going on but at the same time the melody is kind of sweet right and nice there and that's something that you guys go out of your way to find all the time Mm mm-hmm for sure. I think it's Keep al- it simple. Yeah, I think it's always interesting to mix uh, genres of music. And then when you're in a place like Austin, you also have to keep coming up with new stuff, I guess, as totally. well. Constantly. When so many people out there right now. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's part of um, getting people to come see you, especially when you, you might have... Uh, you might have a, a weekly show that you play at the same place. Mm-hmm. In order to keep them coming back, you need to write new songs, and and so each week they you you might give them a, a song or two more that they haven't heard yet, and it pushes you, and they either like it or they don't. So it pushes you to write really good stuff. Uh, the new album is Technicolor. Where did you guys uh, do this at? Where was it recorded? And well, m- I have been so burned out in studios in LA mm-hmm. that um, I was really hoping that I could find just a cool situation, you know, like a house or something where we could just set up. And luckily enough, my aunt has a lake house in nowhere, Texas that she never uses. So we got our engineer that we're good friends with. Um, he's basically a walking studio. He brought the whole, all the gear and everything. We built a studio in that place and lived there for two months in the winter time, which was With a no bit water. intense, yeah, the water, the, the pipes froze, so we didn't have running water for <laughs> the at last... least at least three three weeks. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's almost a blues song on its own. Totally, yeah. you know? totally. It was for me. I was the guy running out to the lake to get water to flush the toilet. Yeah, everyone was hauling lake water to flush <laughs> the toilets. 
Uh, what What is it about Austin right now? How come that's bringing everybody in? What is it about that entire scene? You want to answer that, John? I think I think there's a bunch of really good songwriters in town, mm-hmm. and uh, along with Nashville, Nashville's uh, another city that's that's similar. Mm-hmm. But Austin doesn't have the same industry that that Nashville does, mm-hmm. and and it's a place yeah. where where you can go and write with people, and there are venues where um, you can get up and play every week and play two or yeah. three shows a week if you want to, and it doesn't it doesn't really affect your draw. It's a very musician-friendly town. Yeah. You know? Um, it's laid back. You can... And, and and Austin is also really open to creativity, music-wise. Yeah. You know, there's... You, you can almost go there and, and, and do whatever you want, and you'll find a place for it in that town. And there's not a, a certain sound... That, that that comes is, out of there. Yeah, that, yeah. That comes out of there, or that you're trying to live up to, or trying to work for a label to get. It's you've got a bunch of artists out there, and that's that was my biggest attraction to the place. I always think to myself, it's too bad like a Graham Parsons didn't have a place that like that to go to, right? Because right. so many people would went. Oh, I'm trying to find something, but to be forced, you know, into suddenly finding a big art audience where you really don't have to do that anymore you don't really need to sell a million or two million records like you used to Mm -hmm. um not that you guys wouldn't mind selling a million or two of this oh no we would not mind at all no i just want a million singles (laughs) a million singles singles. we're getting there we are getting there we're gonna make it do you think about is it song by song or with this or did you think uh about the album first. oh we definitely thought about the album as yeah. a whole um you know but i mean when it comes to the business and the industry it's really about the single right. these days it's about that song and the video and hey if you have a record of singles and that's great because right. you can just keep putting stuff out for i mean a year or two the the video also jumps out how did you put right. that together who did that for you that was directed by uh curtis pollock and he's amazing. He's a friend of mine. He lives in he lives in Austin, Texas. We kind of we brainstormed together. You know, my big thing was, you know what? I just don't want to. I just want to do something cool. Just want to do something fun and wild. I don't want to dive deep into any kind of story plot for the video. I want it to look like a chase. I want it to be insane. And totally. so then I went to. Uh, costume store and bought a bunch of animal masks and put them on my band and there you go <laughs> and there it is the whole thing there better. it is put on some roller skates and light Brilliant. a base on fire and you got wild uh you're gonna do another one here for us and this is uh well this is your your original single the original. yeah this is the there. original single broken down version which we're gonna yeah, do we be haven't interesting. done this in a while so yeah it ought, be, ought to be interesting mm-hmm. let's go back to the way i was <laughs> Oh, baby, I need some love I'm driving back to where I'm from Long before it all begun The little red car with the headlights off Says, baby, it's time to run My 
My face turns white as the doors are locked in here How about a little fun? No up in Technicolor. Emily Bell is here with us and John Evans. Uh, you guys are playing in New York City this uh, We are. This that weekend we are. At the Rockwood Music Hall in New York City. That's Saturday night, uh, July 20th. And if you ever want to check out more tour dates, then go to emilybell.com. Uh, but the plan is to stay Austin as a home base. Can't imagine leaving it now. Right now it is. Yeah, right now, yeah. Austin's yeah. a great home base. I wouldn't mind having a you know loft in New York City though. Don't get no, me no, wrong. Totally. That comes. Yeah. That, <laughs> that comes later. Yeah. That comes when. <laughs> I love New York. Yeah, with all different kind of troubles, but yeah. That. So you got you guys love playing everywhere though. You love yeah. just being out on the road. The road is is awesome. Yeah. And Austin's That's just awesome. a great place to be. You know. It's good landing pad. Well, you were bringing up uh, uh, a friend of yours who you said listens to the show. Hey, it's Carl. We had him up on the entire bank for, I think, wasn't that Rustin put up the yeah. five songwriters? He's a big, big fan. He's out of Austin mm-hmm. as, uh, as well. But so many great songwriters out there and so many great stuff that's happening away from the standard 
pop charts. Right. Uh, I know sometimes it gets difficult breaking through, but uh, I really do think it's amazing when you hear some guys doing what, what you folks are doing now. Oh, thank That's, you. It's Appreciate hip, it's that. sexy, it's fun, man, it's got content, it's everything that we're looking for. Emily Bell in Technicolor is the album. Go to emilybell.com. So great to see you guys. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And I, I'm sure this is just the first time. I'm sure we're going to be doing this again and again. Good Would to see that. you guys. The Ron and Fez Show on the Open Anthony Show. Serious XM. <laughs> You've been warned. It's the Ron and Fez Show. Uh, spinners. I call them the Detroit Spinners. Hicks refuses to. They'll always be the Spinners to me. By the way, uh, Flipper just let me know today that BT Express was originally named Brooklyn, Brooklyn Trucking Express. And then he also brought up Ohio Players as having a cool name. Being from a place and then have a name to go with it. You know, Fez you used to live with Flipper. Yes. Uh, he never picked up anything from him. He's always got the sick references. Sick references. Always ready with references. But Fez, you're our fact checker. That's the beauty of you. You're you've got a Wikipedia mind where if you bring up somebody's name to him, he will know them. Uh, all right, lots of stuff up on the iBang today. And Chris Stanley, you're telling me we may have the director from The Art of Killing in today? Uh, the Act of Killing. The yes. Act of Killing. Yes, uh, Mr. Uh, Joshua Oppenheimer. Do you realize that this man is the hottest director on the planet as we speak? Yeah, this, 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 this documentary is blowing up. Who do, you, who do you get? Who's your connection there? That is uh, the Susan Norgit company. They that, kick ass. They never have anything that's not uh, interesting and cool. Yeah, they're they're. What awesome. do they say? We only take interesting and cool films. Pretty much, they they bring it hard. Well, I love that Emily over there. She always swings by, has the uh, the most creative people on the planet hanging out with her. Um, a couple things we'll get to before then. The city of Detroit filed for bankruptcy, and you might be able to go there and buy different things from the city of Detroit. I'll pick up a couple buildings just to say I'm a landowner. They'd love to have you. <laughs> they would love to have you. Uh, they claim now the Syria conflict is the worst since uh, Rwanda. Those pictures are up on the iBank. It's terrible. I don't know whether you saw these other pictures on the iBank, too. The photos of the Boston bombers' capture. I don't know what kind of uh, film they used or camera, yeah. but... Super high def. It is incredibly high def. Yeah, some of these things. Are just... Those are him when he was all shot up. Yeah, and they he... look so cinematic, right? Oh yeah, as because like, of the fucking spotlight on him, and then the the last one with the fucking laser dots. <laughs> That's out of a fucking action movie. 
Ugh. Crazy what we can do with uh, cameras these days. And his his blood is so bright. It's it's weird. Yeah, this is as he was getting captured, as he was giving up, uh, crawling out of the boat because he was basically dying, bleeding to death. Still looks kind of sexy. Um, that's just me. I got uh, a guy named Joe sent us just his thoughts from being an unmasked yesterday. Uh, Fez was really nice, funny and friendly guy who has a flip phone. Mark Zito was quite dickish. He was short and a bit rude. <laughs> that about uh, sums it up. Smiled at Chris as I walked by. I wasn't sure if it was him, but when I heard the voice, I smiled. Uh, he's younger than I thought, oh. but I've never seen a pre-haircut. Thank you. I feel his head is proportionate to his body. <laughs> <laughs> Molly is as sweet as I thought. Uh, and uh, Shelby, it looks exactly like his voice. <laughs> He matches up well, Shelpster. Uh, so very nice from you, Joe. He was wearing the Manchester United shirt. He wants us all to know, and he also thought that the gay guy was kind of set a bad tone. There's a couple of people wrote to me that Fez should have thrown that person out, but you kind of locked up when that uncomfortability happened. I tried to accommodate him without rearranging the entire audience. And then when that didn't happen, you locked. Yeah, then that, it's like, well, you're just screwed then, buddy. But then the whole audience felt screwed. We have to do something if something like that comes up so that the audience will then get re-warmed up. Yeah. Because it started with a bit of tension. That, it was You'll be able to hear it in the unmasked. The weirdness of that man. Um, there is an oven in Europe. I don't know which country we're talking about, like in Denmark or something or... Uh, that inside this oven are burned paintings, Picasso, Monet, and Matisse. They had robbed a place over there. Uh, the cops were getting closer, and they burn up these... No. I don't want to say priceless, but in terms of history, I'm sure they are priceless. But tens of millions of dollars worth of paintings that they burned up in the oven... So they wouldn't be caught. Assholes. That's fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. That's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, something like that should be life sentence. To rob humanity of something like that? You go away for the rest of your life. Why are you angry? You don't live over there and you hate art. I know, <laughs> but still, it's really you, annoying. But you like to have a torch and be part of the crowd. Get him. I will give this to Europe. They have a lot more art heists than the uh, United no, yeah, States. Yeah, I don't think they have the same kind of uh, security we have over here. Although, like, you can go into small towns and, you know, it almost looks like you go into someone's house and look at these paintings and you could pretty much probably grab one and run. You know, these places are like two bucks to get in. And they might have one painting that's really, you know, super cool that somebody in the town gave them. But I, I've done that in my travels before, and I thought, I wonder why an art thief doesn't pick a place like this. I just don't think there's as many art thieves as the movies allow us to believe. No, because who's who are you going to move it to? 
Like you're, yeah, you who's gonna, yeah, whoever you sell to can't put it on their wall. Yeah. They could only put it in their safe. And it, yeah, they couldn't try to sell it like on Christie's or whatever. Because like, oh, I guess you that was fucking stolen ten years ago. And really, no one needs a priceless work of art on their wall. It's kind of ridiculous. It's just so you can look at it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to look at it constantly. You'd be better off with a nice pool. Well, for company, when company comes, <laughs> hey, look. You see that fucking shit? That's a Mona Lisa. <laughs> I had a couple fucking crackheads steal it for me. <laughs> so I'm doing good. So fuck you. They threw a rock to that giant pyramid at the Louvre and were able to fucking drag it out. Um, Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, apparently called in to uh, the fan and said that he was incredibly disappointed with the uh, City Field crowd at the All-Star Game, which are mainly, I guess, Mets season ticket holders and Mets fans, since it's their home stadium, for booing uh, All-Stars that were non-Met related. And he says he's disturbed and let down... And he's a lifelong Met fan. So I think it really, uh, we've got a poll up right now of should they have cheered everybody or should they have booed the people that they fight against? What did we got there? Uh, 77% say, yes, yeah, show some class, cheer the All Stars. 23% say, screw that, you're with us or against us, boo. You have, an, uh, you, here's Jerry Seinfeld's problem you have a dilemma. Do you want classy fans, or do you want to be a Met fan? Because you don't get both. And I say that as a guy who grew up a Phillies fan, saw them treat visiting teams horribly, and was taught, just laugh at your friends and neighbors for acting this way. Look, I'm from Queens, Yeah. and City Field is filled with Queens trash. Trash. All the time. Garbage. Like, the people I know who are Mets fans... Bad people. Yes, I'm going to agree with you 100%. Um, I'm going to agree 100%. I think Jerry Seinfeld is being a big baby about this. If you go out there and you're getting booed at the All-Star game by the Mets crowd, that means you must be playing great to be a thorn in their side so badly that they want you to hear about it. Well, there is some truth to your your statement. But what he's saying, it's a night to honor people, and you should stop the game. You know, almost like in ancient Greece, where they would say, let's stop the wars. We're playing the Olympics because this is to salute the gods. This is a night to salute excellence in baseball, right? So when you go to the Oscars... And let's say they say Forrest Gump. Uh, let's see, Forrest Gump is up. The guys from Pulp Fiction don't start booing and yelling <laughs> that sucks Fuck you, because Hanks. it's a night to honor all the movies. The All Star Game, and Mr. Seinfeld points this out, is a night to honor all of baseball. Now, what are you saying is true? But that would have to mean. City Field does not get the All-Star game because their low-life, nuck-dragging fans feel more like you do, like we play against them, so let's boo. And really, they booed everybody except for two guys. They should just tear down that stadium. It's brand new. Disband the team. Okay, but let's keep the stadium. We can have it for other reasons. 
I think booing and cheering is also part of baseball. Yes, during the home game. This is like neutral ground. This, yeah, this on. is the, it's not it's not the Phillies versus the Mets. If the Phillies come into town, Jerry Seinfeld's going to say, "How can you boo these fucking great players?" He's not going to say that because this is a game Phillies against the Mets. The game that night, it's not really Mets Stadium. It was the National League Stadium that night. It was a night to celebrate baseball. They just happened to be using City Field. Uh, it has nothing to do with the Mets fans, really. I, but I think what it is is that you, they're the they're the Mets. Arch they had three is's in there. They're not all the arch nemesis. They're the all fit. brought together. Any yeah. of those National League players. They booed the National League and American League. They booed everybody except for if you happen to play for the Mets. <laughs> Um, she just all left after Harvey stopped pitching. <laughs> she just walked out. Uh, but yeah, the, the Harvey and Wright got cheered, and everybody else was uh, was booed. Um, so it wasn't down to like again. If they're playing uh, the Phils, we get it. You hate them. Now I'm saying that growing up a Phillies fan, and they act the same fucking way. I mean, the, the Phillies and Mets are, and actually, since they got the new stadium and it's more expensive, it's a lot less harsh than it used to be. You're actually getting booed by a better class of person. <laughs> I I kind of prefer the old way, but yeah, these are not um, these are not people. Um, here's uh, Craig. Craig, you're on the Run and Fed show. Hey, what's going on, Ronnie? I'm just wondering if you ever get tired of having to talk to Fez like he's a child to get him to understand a certain point. Like, you got to sit and pause, okay? Are you following me? And wait for him to give you that blank stare before you can move on. Well, he comes to it from a place where, you know, he, he hasn't, you know, Fez goes by feelings and not thoughts. And then, then on top of that, he's not even a baseball fan. So I had to kind of explain a little bit about what the All-Star game is. But to go back to the initial thing, Seinfeld also needs to, to understand that he is a Mets fan. And by saying that, you, you've taken a lower station in life. And I'm saying that as a Phillies fan, I understand in Philadelphia... A, a person on the other team gets hurt, injured bad, the Philadelphia fans are going to cheer that and mock that person as they put him into an ambulance and his family's crying. They could, they could, they could and people's again. wives are going to get shit thrown at them. You know what I mean? It's not a place to tell your wife, hey, we're playing Philly, why don't you come in with the kids and support us? That's a, that's a dangerous uh, proposition. Um, here's uh, let's go over here to um, Eric. You're on the Run of Fez show. I'm shocked at uh, Fez's stance on this. It's kind of like growing up uh, laughing at gays. It's just part of life, is what he's saying. It is kind of an it's interesting like that. They yell faggot, Fez. They yell that at people there when you go to City Field. It's one of their oh, chants. Well, that stinks. But. But that's only because it attaches you uh, personally. Um, by the way, uh, when we do the Wanda Sykes later, who did the, you know, don't use the word gay, you will hear a little bit of an Asian slight from her, which made me laugh. Because, again, was it a joke? 
Yeah. Did she mean any harm in it? No. If you're an Asian, would you have liked it? I don't know. Maybe not. I'm sure some Asians would have been offended. I want to remind people that Wanda special Hilarious is going to be on tomorrow night at 10 o'clock on the OWN Network. It's Hilarious, Fez, because there's women being funny. Ladies. Um, here's uh, Bruce. You're on the Run of Fez show. Okay, here's the deal, Ron. They didn't boo Rivera. So they understood greatness and chose to ignore it because when the Mets do play the Yankees, Rivera smokes their ass. And they well, l- let's be honest about this. They knew it was his last appearance uh, in an All-Star game. They understood that it was part of history, and they took that time to react properly. You know what I mean? Right. They What they said was, we're going to help you celebrate your career. And really, when you think about it, the people in that stand, in those stands, were representing all of us, everybody across the country, because you want to stop and say you're great. There are certain times when people retire that we say the sport is worse for it, and sometimes um, there are people when they go out. Well, in that Doctor Doctor J. Everybody had a retirement party for Dr. J because he meant so much to basketball, not just to the Nets and the Sixers that he played for. Uh, Rivera met a great deal to baseball. Now, the thing of booing those guys or not, personally, I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't offended by what I saw because I know that I'm looking at Mets fans. Same way when I know I'm looking at Phillies fans. Uh, we're putting something up on the uh, iBank for the weekender question. Higgs, I'm going to give this to you right off the bat. Okay. Your greatest single baseball memory. <sighs> Holy shit. I'm going to bring by him one right. for this, too. Now, it could be something you watched or your own experience. Anything you want to talk about. Honestly, it was probably I was a 13-year-old kid. And the New York Yankees won the 96 series. When that happened, the the return to greatness. And not even knowing what's going to happen afterwards, where they just bang out fucking two or three yeah, more. Yeah, because they were how many years in between? Like 15 years since they had won yeah. your entire lifetime? Yeah. And you got to see the Yanks win. They did it in gigantic fashion. Against the fucking Braves. It's, it's amazing. It just, it, it you know. When little... that happened... It was something like it affected you yourself. Yeah. Now, this is up on the iBang. Best story. And it could be a play that you saw. It could be your own personal experience. Going with your dad. Hot dog. It doesn't matter. We have a signed. And this is a guy that I think is a great baseball ambassador. Tommy Lasorda. Holy shit. One of the guys that I would do positive heckles at during... Spring training. Uh, just, you looking great, Tommy. Look at you. Wearing that tan, Tommy, because you're only five feet away from him. At one time, me and, and a friend were sitting there, and Tommy was like like three feet away. And we're like, Tommy looks great, doesn't he, man? Has he lost weight? Tommy sort of looks so thin now, man, but like in shape thin. And we were just watching him. He's filling out a lineup card and smiling, and we could see him leaning his ear to us. Loving the fact that people were saying nice things about Tommy. Good. Bob, uh, and let's put the, the grilled cheese thing away right now. Let's get that out of our mind. I was going to say that must be his best memory. Stop of it. 
purposely Gor- leaving my sandwich behind. That's Gorilla actually Cheese correct. is downstairs right now. You can go down to that truck and get it anytime you want mm. for four and a quarter. More if you want cheddar or bacon bits on it. It's an extra two dollars. What for bits? Buy your greatest baseball memory. Ever? I would say yes, ever. Well, I don't know. I mean, I would say oh. probably my greatest baseball memory was I went to a game. It was the Orioles and the Angels. It was Cal Ripken's last season. Wow! And I saw Cal Ripken hit a home run in the first inning. The pitch before he fouled one off, and I got the ball. Holy wow. shit! You could cool. be winning the Tommy Lasorda on that. You still got it to this day? I do. Yeah. That's nice. Wow, that's a big one. I got a couple. Uh, a couple come to mind. Uh, taking my dad in 93. We flew to Atlanta. I'm in the fifth row. We're the only Phillies fans there. Darren Dalton, uh, his wife and I are, were very good friends. I was at their wedding. Got to know him very well. And I yelled out, Hey Bubba, which I never called him. I don't know why I even yelled it. I know some of his friends did. He looks up and sees me. He fucking points at me like he's so fired up, right? With all this shit. And he's like, yeah, let's do this, right? And I'm fucking yelling back, right? Yes! He takes off his batting gloves. He fucking wraps them up. What? Fires it at me, right? I'm five rows back. I catch the batting gloves, hand them to my dad, and we fucking sit down. And I remember thinking, this is weird shit. But it was really funny just saying like... You know, because baseball players are, like, so fucking cool and laid back. How fucking edgy they were right before that. Just juiced. Yeah. That's, that's a crazy But I have story, a better dude. one. Going into, <laughs> as a little kid, going into the ballpark, uh, which was the old um, Scheibe Field, Connie Mack Stadium, which was, like, it looked like a building, like a museum from the outside. And I'm just, like, a little kid. And walking into that building and seeing a big league field for the first time in the middle of the city, this gorgeous lawn, dirt was more beautiful. And I'm like, I can't believe it. And the game's already starting. And I just hear the hit. I don't even see it. And my fucking dad lifts me up in the air. And I'm seeing the ball go out over right field, out into the darkness. And he goes, Hank fucking hit one on us. And... that was the first time I, I'd awesome. come in, and I'm like, tr- I'm like, this is all too, <laughs> this is all too exciting. Something too could not be this great. <laughs> this is too much. Like if if a little kid could have a heart attack, I would have had one out of pure excitement. Uh, it's up on the eye bank today. Your chance uh, to jump into that. Um, but you know, there's. I mean, I can just think of playing Little League or whatever, just like so many like little memories of a double to win the game, not some home run. Like, you know, there's so many great little memories that you can have with baseball because it's one of the few sports that the one play that you did could win a game. Up on the iBank today, it'll be the weekender. question. Anthony, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, guys. Um, I was in uh, fourth grade. I'm real little, a wide-eyed kid, and uh, we're taking a class trip to New York City. I've never been in New York. I've never been in a big city. We come out of the Lincoln Tunnel in the bus, and I'm looking up, and what do I see? I see Doc fucking Gooden painted on the side 
of a tall building. I, I remember and that. I, I remember that spot right as you came into town. I brought that up to Doc not too long ago. Yeah, I was I was just like draw a gape, fucking eyes wide, saucers. After that, I was a Mets fan for the rest of my life. And by and the was, way, dude, Doc wasn't that much older than you at the time. He was only like 19 when that happened to him. It was like too much. Uh, Jeff, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, guys. Uh, I think I changed mine. I'm going to have to say, first it was Kirk Gibson's walk-off home run being such a diehard Dodger fan in the 88 World Series. But I, we went, my dad took us to a game up at Candlestick, and we're from the Bay originally. And this was so long ago, they were still serving glass bottles of beer. And we always knew whenever the Dodgers were up in the top of the ninth, it's time to go because uh, things are going to get bad. So we were so young, we were still holding my dad's hand. And so some drunks up there at the very top row at a night game saw three blue uh, jersey, or, you know, starter jackets walking out of the parking lot. And, and all of a sudden, beer bottles get started and hucked at us. And my dad picks us up, and he's running through cars, my brother and I. And he picks us up by our hands. And my brother and I are banging off cars as my dad's running in between cars to carry us back to safety. And from that moment on, it was on between the Dodgers and Giants. That's that's hysterically crazy. Um, we could do this for an hour, but it'll be up all weekend. And here's the weird thing, by you're you're a guy who loves sports. People don't have these kind of football memories for whatever reason. That whatever you say about baseball, it is the most nostalgic of all games. I don't know why we hold on to these baseball memories like this. It's almost as if baseball is more emotional. I mean, football is kind of strategic. You know, there's some you're constantly analyzing the play. Baseball is more of a story that's free form. But it was the weirdest thing. I remember uh, going up to Yankee Stadium with my dad. Never been a Yankees fan. Uh, and I was in my teens by the time this happened, and thinking, I cannot believe I'm in Yankee Stadium. Like, I had this, I was not prepared. I, on the way there, I was going to a ball game, but when I walked into that place, I felt like probably the way some people feel when they walked into the Louvre, you know? I was like really moved just looking around and going, this is Yankee Stadium. I felt like I walked into a, a book or something. I felt like I walked into a fairy tale. And luckily, the people of New York thought, we don't need that shitty old stadium. Yeah. Well, no one has a lot of flat screens. No one cares, though. You do not care. I brought, uh, you know, when it went from uh, Connie Mack Stadium to the Vet in Philly in the 70s, I walked in the place, it was nothing. I never have any of these feelings about the vet. I only have these feelings about being a really little kid and being in a real baseball stadium. And people will tell me now, oh, the parking was shitty and there were seats that you couldn't see. None of that is in my memories. My memory is more being in an actual baseball stadium. Not built for TV, not built for comfort. Just something magical about being a real big league field. All right, this is up as the weekender. It'll be up all weekend. Um, your chance to pick up a baseball signed by a guy who is going to be one of the immortal names of all time, Tommy Lasorda. You know, if you like baseball, you like Tommy. You can't get around it. Uh, a guy who ate that well in the locker room, that's another. You never hear about what kind of food. <laughs> I mean, they would cater this thing well. The Dodgers would cater that locker room well. Um, but we got that. Also coming up, because we've got Josh Oppenheimer 
uh, we're going to do a Twitter contest. How about this? Signed Apocalypse Now, Martin Sheen. Uh, only because this movie is about that kind of madness, but in real life. So that's going to come up in a little bit. I got a break right now. Uh, put your stories up on the iBang. We're going to give out that uh, that signed Tommy Lazor to baseball. We'll be right back. It's the Ron Fest Show. You're enjoying the Ron and Fest Show on Sirius XM's Opie and Anthony channel. More in moments. Dollar Shave Club. All guys want when it comes to shaving is a great shave without having to put out a fortune to go buy razors each and every month. 40, 50 bucks for those name brand razors that aren't going to do you any better than the great razors that you can get for just a couple of bucks at dollarshaveclub.com. Go to dollarshaveclub.com, do yourself a favor, pick out the package you want, and you get fresh razors sent to your home each and every month from dollarshaveclub.com. Become a member today and make sure, since it's summertime, pick up a package of those One Wipe Charlies. Add that to your order so you feel refreshed all summer long. It's dollarshaveclub.com. Dollarshaveclub.com. Get a great shave and keep your cash at dollarshaveclub.com. Join today. It's dollarshaveclub.com. Dollarshaveclub.com. This is the Ron and Fez Show on the Open Anthony Channel. Friday uh, coming up, uh, Wanda Sykes, Wanda Sykes on Unmasked. What would you like to say about that, Fez? That her special, Hilarious, airs this weekend. It's Saturday night, the 20th, uh, at 10 p.m. in the East on Oprah's own network. I thought we had like a little piece that she, she was doing about that. No. What happened? No, that didn't get approval from down the hallway. How come? Apparently, that's like since it's pre-recorded, that makes it a official commercial. 
Oh, okay. This is just me and you hanging out talking about Just Wanda. a couple of fellas yeah. just, you know, shooting the shit, if you will. Talking about what's on OWN this weekend. Like we always do. In this uh, case, it's hilarious. I get it now. Then for a second I was confused. Oh, because when I left here last night, we said we would play that trap a couple times. But that got nixed because now that sounds like a commercial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one is just a uh, uh, plug. The other is commercial. All right. That does make sense to me. That's the way it went down. But let me know. You know, let Ronnie be on it. Don't be like, oh, I want to keep this away from Ron. Uh, he's not going to understand. Because believe me, I do understand. Kind of. No, I think, no, I don't understand. I kind of understand. The Weekender, your chance to win a Tommy Lasorda signed baseball. Uh, it's a hell of a one. Um, it's just your best baseball memory. It could be a personal memory, and it, it can be even more. It can be a... Just a great play that you saw. Rexstar says, I quit going to games since the strike. Now, what was that, 94? The last strike? A long time ago. The I like, uh, I like a good strike because then you're like, oh, okay, now I get some free time. Now I can do what I need to do. I don't have to sit around watching sports all the time. To be a sports fan today, you re it's almost like a second job to keep up with the incredible amounts of sport that is out there on TV. There's, we're never outside of any season. It's a constant. And you have to know all the names, and people are bringing them up to you. And you're just like, sometimes I would like a break from sport. I wish I could do that. Uh, we're going to be talking to... And I will say this. This film is the craziest film I've ever seen in my life. It's called The Act of Killing. Um, if you go over to IMDb, it has a 100% approval rating on the Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 100%. Toy Story 3 couldn't get that. And you know why. Armin... But this film, I would say this. If you're going to watch it, you don't really need to go and read much about it. I just let it rolled over me. I don't know how to explain it to people. It's about a genocide that took place and the act of interviewing the winners. And as you're watching this and you're hearing these people who killed like a half a million or a million people. And they didn't kill them in battle. They killed them one at a time, taking them out of their homes and we would say murdering, but to them it was a righteous kill. It was the only thing they could have done because they had a, this fear of the communists. And these guys sit around later in life bragging about it. And then somehow this filmmaker, Joshua Oppenheimer, got them to recreate the killing. So you're watching people explain, and they would get neighborhood children to, like, okay, in this scene, we're going to take your mom away, and you're going to be crying because we're burning your house down. You're seeing your... Madness. Absolute madness. 
but there is then also becomes a part of you who says how many wars do we also celebrate uh, ourselves and I don't know they did a thing in the, and and of course our government was on the side of the killing not our troops weren't physically there but our government back in the 1960s in Southeast Asia it was all about us versus Russia and China and we'd have these little you know we went from Korea Vietnam Cambodia you know because we did not want the communists taking over all that part of the world so we were supporting these gangsters and paramilitary guys and I would imagine that there would be Chinese or Russian money going towards the communists. I'm not even saying one is better than the other. Uh, to me, it's not political. It's just about seeing the awful things that human beings do. And we're not on the outside of that. You know, what was your uh, line that you used to say over and over? Turn it into glass. No, you never said turn it into glass. You used to say... Oh. I want to see atrocities. Fez used to say after 9-11, I want to see uh, atrocities of war. Over and over he would say that. Within a couple of years, you became anti-war. You marched anti-war. But that time, because the fear was so big, he just would say over and over, I want, to, I want everyone over there killed. I want to hear about horrible acts against men, women, and children. And he was saying that sincerely, and he wasn't the only person saying that. There was a lot of people who would say, we should just bomb it all. And you have to admit, there is a part of us who thinks if we kill every radical Muslim in the world, the world will be a better place. We will feel safer. So to stand back and see something like this happen and act like I can't identify with it, I don't, I don't know if that's true of humans. I think we do identify with if we kill who we consider the bad people, uh, we would be okay. There are parts of this movie that you watch it and you think to yourself, this is as if like the Nazis won the war and they could speak freely talking to the people of how they took place in the genocide and how they did it and why they're somewhat happy or proud of themselves. There is a part of this where some of these people going, hey, we need to get the story out there, or our story will be forgotten. How we m took people out uh, in the middle of the night and murdered them, and left them in the streets for their family to say. We, got, we have to remind the world of this great thing that we've done. There are parts of this film that you feel like, it was Biff who ended up getting the sports book, and this is what the world took on, uh, a part of. In the same time, this place is absolutely, stunningly beautiful. Um, Activekilling.com is the website. When I tell you this is the most talked about uh, film in the world today, I'm not kidding. It's being looked at all over the world uh, and is getting raves all over the world because the this story becomes kind of a reflective mirror on all of us. And I'm talking about Americans, Germans, Japanese, Chinese, Russian, into South America. None of us 
have none of our countries haven't either been on one side or the other side of this type of thing. It made me disgust it with human beings at at certain point. Literally going, something is mentally wrong with our own species. Um, and when I say it's shocking, you're not seeing actual brutal acts, but you are getting the reasons why the brutal acts took place by the actual killers. Uh, we are going to be doing a uh, Twitter contest for the first responders. Signed Apocalypse Now by Martin Sheen. It's at the act of killing. We'll also have that up at the iBank. But for the first responders, at the act of killing. Uh, I'm very, very uh, happy and always grateful to the first responders because they keep great people coming back in here. I'm telling you now, this guy who made this film um, that is being praised all over the world is remarkable that Chris could get him to stop in here and talk to us about this film. It is phenomenal that we could pull this off. Um, we will bring him in now, Mr. Joshua Oppenheimer. Joshua Oppenheimer in studio with us. The film is The Act of Killing. It opens exclusively in New York City at the uh, Landmark Sunshine Cinema. Today opens in L.A., Washington, D.C. next Friday. Uh, Activekilling.com and at The Act of Killing on Twitter. Joshua, how are you, my friend? I'm fine. It's nice to be here. Um. It's strange to say a great movie about something that's so damn disturbing. Uh, it, this is a very hard film to describe to people, something that they should go see. But I, uh, it is something that people should go see. What, d explain it, because I don't want to give too much away, because I walked into it blind, and I, I would love to know how, how you would pitch this to people. I haven't had to pitch it in a long time, <laughs> yeah. but what, what I would say is that in 1965-66, there was the army overthrew the government of Indonesia, installed a military dictatorship. The military recruited death squad, para paramilitary civilians to kill somewhere between, help kill somewhere between half a million and two and a half million opponents of the new military dictatorship. These people could be members of unions, they could be teachers, they could be people struggling so that the land would be redistributed in a more equitable way, artists, intellectuals, anybody who was opposed to the military dictatorship was accused of being a communist put in concentration camps and many of them somewhere between half a million and two and a half million within a year were dispatched out to death squads to be killed and unlike in other places where there's been genocide the perpetrators have never been have never been removed from power so the men who did this are still in power and therefore unlike other perpetrators in other films they neither deny what they've done nor act apologetic about it on the contrary they boast and 
so to understand the nature of their boasting, why are they why do they seem to be proud about this? I worked with a group of these apparently proud, apparently remorseless former death squad leaders to dramatize and let them dramatize their memories of mass killing in whatever ways they wished. And it turned out in the place where I made the film, in, in northern Sumatra, the, the army recruited its killers from the ranks of gangsters who, had, who were hanging out in cinemas and were fans of Hollywood movies. And so they reenact the killings in the styles of their favorite films, Western gangster even song and dance musical number, a la Vincente Minnelli. And you're all you're kind of shooting a film inside of your documentary, where it's showing these guys acting out as they did in the 1960s. Some of them play victims, some of them uh, play versions of themselves, and madness is the norm. That's the strangest thing about the film. Yeah, I think there's two different issues here. First, they're not making their own film. Right. They're making scenes for my film, for our film. So we uh, gave them, we gave them the chance, if you like, to create scenes in whatever ways they wish. So they write the scripts. They cast their friends and their neighbors to play in the to, to act in the scenes. They play the killers. They play the victims. They direct the scenes, and. I follow that process um, and use uh, and use their scenes in the act of killing. Now, when you when you say madness is the norm, I would just I, I would sort of say two things about it. The, the, it turns out one of the most devastating, if you like, discoveries of the film is that this boasting about killing, the celebration of killing, seems to be at first a sign that these men feel no remorse about mm -hmm. what they've done, that they're proud of it. And it gradually becomes clear that it, the contrary is true, that the boasting itself is some sort of desperate effort on behalf, on the part of the killers, to convince themselves that what they did was right, so that they don't, because they've never been forced to admit it was wrong. And so, and they don't want to. They'll cling, one of the killers in the film says, killing is the worst thing you can do. But, so if you get paid for it, if you get away with it, do it, but then make up an excuse so you can live with yourself. So these men killed on behalf of the government. The government gave them excuses in the form of of propaganda justifying it celebrating it and they've clung to for dear life to that excuse so that's the paradox in the film is that this crazy boasting celebration of the most inhumane acts actually is a symptom turns out to be a symptom of the killer's humanity and the tragedy there is that once you kill and you get away with it and you boast about it and you justify it that precipit that leads to this inevitable downward spiral into evil and corruption because now you have to suppress the survivors so that they the, the, the sure. relatives of the victims so that they never challenge your version of the story you have to blame them for what happened so that they you can then shake them down in markets you can steal their land with impunity and you even have to kill again because if the government says okay now kill this other group of people for much the same reason if you don't do it the second time, it, it's like admitting it was wrong the first time. So there's this, the film witnesses and documents this sort of inevitable downward spiral of inhumanity that stems from the first act of killing, and yet is a consequence of the very human need to justify our actions. And in that sense, the film turns out to be this 
this painful indictment, if you like, not just of the men in the film, mm -hmm. not just modern Indonesia, but all of us. Yeah. Because all of us justify our actions. All of us tell stories to justify what we do and to escape from the more bitter and painful parts of our reality. And we've all sent young people off to war and said what you're doing is heroic you're terrific and then when they come back they're also forced to where do they put these things that they've done and seen in their own minds and you can't escape watching that going you know at one point they kind of act like hey we need to do this because people will forget if we don't as if they were war heroes and also know? also we like to you know you you see this film and it's it's tempting to think okay this is this crazy reality located on the other side of the world mm -hmm. that's interesting as a kind of case study for right. how the de depravity of human beings but we have to remember that this is not a distant reality this is the dark underbelly of our reality sure this shirt i'm wearing it's a five dollar a 95 cent t-shirt I picked up when I got to New York because it was hot. I went to H&M, I bought this shirt. I'm cutting off the, the tag and I see it says made in Bangladesh. And I have to think to myself at that moment, I wonder if the people who made this shirt are buried in a pile of rubble because just a few weeks ago, the H&M sweatshop in, Bang in Dhaka, Bangladesh collapsed because everything was done so, on, so much on the cheap. And mm -hmm. I had this feeling that in that moment, look, everything we buy is produced in places like the Indonesia of the act of killing. Everything we buy is produced in sweatshops where perpetrators have won, where in their, where there's been mass violence, the perpetrators have won, taken power, and in their victory built regimes of fear so har so oppressive that the people who make everything we buy for us never can get the human cost of what we buy included in the price tag that we pay. So in that sense, we all depend on the men you see in the act of killing, the gangsters and thugs who keep people afraid for our everyday living. Yeah. And we know that, actually. I think most of us somehow know yeah. it. We know it for a second, and then we push it away, much in the same way if you're going to eat a pork chop. Every once in a while, you might think, hey, this was a living animal. But then you go back into enjoying your pork chop. And that's exactly what we see Anwar and his friends doing yeah. throughout the whole movie that they glimpse in horror what they're dealing with and then they quickly run away from that and that that's actually the core of the film's method we would let anwar and his friends shoot a scene they would shoot whatever they wanted and then we'd screen it back to them we would never plan two or three scenes at once we'd mm -hmm. screen the film the scene back to them one asking what will they see in the mirror of the movie if you like they'd watch the scene and every time you see Anwar watching a scene, the main character, a guy who's killed a thousand people, he looks really disturbed. And I think he is really disturbed every single time. And he's disturbed not because the scene isn't good, but because of what the scene shows that he did. But he never had, and so it, he, he, it's like eating the pork chop. He, he's aware of something mm -hmm. unpleasant, uncomfortable, terrible. And he, and by the way, I eat pork. I eat mm -hmm. pork chops. Sure. He, he watches this and he immediately doesn't dare say what's wrong right. and instead he has to put that feeling somewhere because he's not feeling well about what he's watching and so he proposes a new embellishment oh a change of costume a change of clothes a change of location so we see so over the course of as we move from one scene to another scene one reenactment to another one dramatization to another that the the dramatizations become more and more ornate more and more 
surreal, more and more dreamlike, and we follow the process by which Anwar or, or and a whole group of killers shuffle, if you like, move from one fantasy, second-hand, third-rate, half-remembered fantasy of who they are yeah. to justify who they are and what they've done, and then they move to another one and, an, uh, and another one as each one grows somehow stale. And uh, we would call this, if we were on their side, post-traumatic stress. You can see these people dealing with the horrors of what they've done. And, you know, at one point, Anwar talks about, I have the marijuana, I have the alcohol, I have the ecstasy. You know, anything to change his state, dance, whatever it takes to change his state. Well, actually, that's a very good, a good example, because... What and and it, it because Anwar says he's drinking, taking drugs, going yeah. out dancing to forget what he's done, and then he launches into a cha 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 right after mm-hmm. that in the location where he's just shown how he killed a thousand people there on the spot. So, for the viewer, there's this. Tr- that's a very good example of how the film walks this tightrope. I hope between empathy and repulsion, we see we empathize with a man struggling with his past, and we're repulsed by the stories that he and his society have clung to have told themselves in order to justify what they've done in this moment where he dances where he's killed a thousand people is a moment of pure shock in a way we we i and it speaks to also why i was making this film i uh my collaborator christine sin and i we were entrusted by a community of survivors and the human rights community in indonesia with whom we'd already been working to make a film that would if you like expose the expose the nature of this regime, the nature of what happened in 1965, above all for Indonesians themselves. See, with American viewers, I'm much more concerned that we look at ourselves. Right. With Indonesian viewers, but the main political goal here, if I had a political, a moral agenda, it was to create a film that would so profoundly expose the nature of the moral vacuum, the rot that's that occurs when you build a normality on mass graves. It's it's an expose, not of something people don't know in Indonesia. It's about showing them what they already know, but have been too afraid to say. Just like the child in the emperor's new clothes says, yeah. look, the king is naked. Everybody knew it, but didn't dare say it. But now that it's been said so forcefully, so emotionally by the perpetrators themselves, there's somehow no no going back. There's no pretending it's not true anymore. And I was also taken by the fact of this celebration that democracy won, which is incredibly corrupt there, capitalism won, which is incredibly corrupt, and then you look at the vast amount of people and they're living in poverty, and it wouldn't have mattered to most of these people what side won this thing. If they were living in communi- under communists, if they were living under uh, the, their democratic, supposedly, they are still going to be in the same exact spot. Most people uh, have nothing to do with any of this madness. Well... Yes, but we don't. We also, I think, it's important to recognize that we don't fully know that. In the sense that, in the sense that, the military dictatorship accused everybody who was opposed to them of being communists. But right. we're talking. But what they wiped out was all of the society's writers, all of the society's artists, all of the society's filmmakers, all of the society's union organizers, all of the people in the society who were 
you know, struggling for the rights of the small farmer. So the act of killing here, and then they accused them all of being communist, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really necessarily a struggle between communism and the West. It was a struggle between the people who were, had been, had been fighting already for 20 years for Indonesia to be a free, independent, decolonized country and the army, which came in and decided they would take the position of the Dutch colonizers. It, it had been a Dutch colony until 1945 and a very exploited one at that. Um, And so essentially, the act of killing as a title has all these double meanings. One is, of course, about killing and one is about acting. But the other is is that the act of killing also refers to the killing of ideas, the Mm -hmm. killing of hope, the killing of solidarity, the killing of community. And not just the killing of human bodies. And we, we don't know... I mean, it's not just that a lot was destroyed. It is we cannot recover what was destroyed. Those things are lost. A, a Holocaust actually, and this is perhaps one of the si- singular tragedies of a Holocaust, is that actually ideas, community, thought is hope is lost. It's not recoverable. We can imagine what might have been, but we can never know and never recover what was destroyed. How many great leaders might have been in there? How many doctors could have been in there? How many people who would have come up with anything? Yeah, there's a woman I know. She was the daughter of an Indonesian, of, of one of the first victims of the genocide. He was the head of a political party. She she lives in France. When we opened the film in France, she really wanted to come to the opening. I said, okay, I'm going to get you a ticket so you can sit right beside me. She lost her country. She lost her father. He was a political, he was the head of one of the biggest political parties. She lost her brother. He was an important intellectual. She lost her the rest of her family was scattered. She was grew up alone in France. She couldn't come because she was cleaning offices at night. And, you know, if you imagine the daughter of the head of the Democratic Party, Obama's mm-hmm. daughter, for example, cleaning offices 40 years later, we, um, that's, there's nothing wrong with cleaning offices. It's a dignified work. It's an important work. But the, the wasted lives, the wasted mm-hmm. opportunity, the wasted resources you know a whole generation of indonesian students who were sent abroad by the government had their citizenship so they could study abroad and become the doctors the the teachers the researchers the artists the writers of the of, of modern indonesia lost their had their citizenship taken away simply because they'd been given scholarships by the previous government and therefore were assumed to be loyal they had their citizenship taken away and were stuck cleaning offices and doing menial pretty pretty low-ranking blue-collar jobs all over the world for decades all of that investment in them was squandered the other thing that is just stunning is there are shots in this film that have such natural beauty maybe some of the most beautiful things i've ever seen on film are in this movie they live more or less in a natural paradise and for whatever reason human beings can fuck up paradise yeah i think there's two different issues here i think that um it was very important to me that when they when anwar and his friends would propose a scene uh, they have for example a scene at a waterfall mm-hmm. where anwar imagines himself in heaven being greeted by his victims and they give him a medal and thank him for killing that for killing them and sending them to heaven it, this scene could have been done as a kitsch like a t- bad southeast asian karaoke video or mm-hmm. i could 
do all that I could with my small documentary crew. We could do all that we could to make it as majestic and beautiful as possible. And it was a principle that we should do everything we could to make the film, the scenes as strong as possible so that they can, so that we're first of all not looking down on the characters. We're not snidely thinking, oh, how tacky. But we're actually, the audience is moved by the things Anwar wants us to be moved by so that we are lost with him in the evolving beautiful nightmare mm. of his fantasies so that we experience that firsthand that was one important principle another important principle is that indonesia insofar as it has many places that are a tropical paradise bali is the most famous is in fact a tropical paradise built atop a mass grave not long ago there was a storm uh that hit a big a resort hotel uh, hit bali and big waves knocked have washed away part of the garden of a major res- five-star resort hotel, a Western hotel. And the next morning when the guests came down to the beach to see the, to go to the beach and see the damage, dozens and dozens of bodies had spilled out onto the beach, the, the private beach of this resort hotel. They were all, it was a mass grave from 1965. A hundred thousand people were killed on the tiny island of Bali alone. And we here in this country live on mass graves. We came in and pretty much wiped out uh, a people who live here. We're built on slavery. And it always feels like we're swimming upstream as hard as we can to try to at least knock off those two things, let alone the, the fact that we use child labor and women were suppressed. And all those things are part of our our past. But the first thing that you learn in school is this is the greatest country in the world. You're so lucky to live here. This is the best place in the world. And when you're watching this film and you see people uh, more or less indoctrinated because of, you know, they're confused about the word, what the word gangster even means. They they believe there that gangster means free man. And there's a part of you that starts to uh, giggle about that. And then the other part of you that thinks certain ideas are given to you as a young person. Why? Why do they want to put these ideas into your head? Well, I suppose it's, it's to justify and naturalize violence. I mean, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. The United States is built on the twin holocausts of the Native American genocide and slavery, and we've never, t- to my knowledge, had an actual presidential apology for slavery. Um, we're struggling. I thought, I've thought of it recently because around the release of the film in the UK, there's been a struggle for a presidential apology for the 1965 genocide. We have, a, 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 there's a campaign for that. Um, and I realized, my gosh, we've never had a presidential apology for slavery. I, I think that Oscar Wilde said that patriotism is the virtue of the vicious. And I think he's absolutely right in that what matters, the values that matter, the values that we can live by to make the world a better place are is to value each other as human beings wherever we live. And these national stories, but this is the greatest country on earth, this is the land of the free, the home of the brave, when in fact we know also we 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 believe that but we know the horror that underpins that and that that erases that that denies that actually it's the virtue of patriotism's the virtue of the vicious in the sense that it it naturalizes and allows us to ignore and therefore it makes it inevitable that we repeat 
our most violent and and immoral deeds. Yeah, it is a it is exactly right. This is a reoccurring history, uh, pretty much, and it isn't you know it's not even a political thing. I think it's a species thing in many ways. Um, but the other part of it that hits me is these people watched Hollywood movies, uh, and we always talk about the Hollywood liberals, but we put out this violent violent product, and the, those gangsters watched that and said we could do this. Not so much make films, but we could do what the characters in the films are doing. And they based kind of their life on some of that. Yeah, I think though that it's important to recognize that the most that the I would say the message of this film is not that Hollywood violence causes real world violence. In fact, the most vivid example that uh the main character in the film Anwar has for of, of a movie influencing his behavior is an Elvis Presley musical. He says mm-hmm. he would watch an Elvis Presley musical, The Late Show, come out intoxicated by his love for Elvis, by his identification with Elvis, dance his way across the street and kill people, enter the torture chamber and kill the victim happily. Now, Elvis Presley musicals are not violent, but they are stupid. And they involve a certain kind of escapist fantasy mm-hmm. that distances us from reality. So I think the real risk here is escapist fantasy, the way we use and, and the biggest escapist fantasy of all. It's a lie every time we tell it, and it underpins almost every story we tell, is, that the, is what I call the Star Wars morality, that the world is divided into good guys and bad guys. Right. And actually, the main purpose of that fantasy, I think, is to reassure us, reassure ourselves that we are the good guys, because we watch movies and we identify with the good guys but and i think that that prevents us from seeing the truth which is that every act of evil in human history has been committed by human beings like us and that good guys and bad guys in fact only exist in movies and in stories and they and that that whole dividing of the world into this false good and bad human beings exist to reassure ourselves that we're good and i would also say that somehow we that that what we're doing when we watch violent movies is deeply mysterious, deeply strange. We human human beings are really the only species that kill. Killing is a quintessentially human act, as painful as that is to recognize. And then that we pay money to go into a cinema or watch or we watch on TV beautifully executed images of people getting their head blow, heads blown off. It. What are we doing? Is it, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. Right, we, but it, we first have to understand what are we doing. It is attractive to us. What are we doing? Are we are we trying to numb ourselves to the fact that to the violence that we know un, underpins our our everyday lives that we know, you know that we depend on other people's suffering for our living and that's traumatic or difficult. So we try to inure ourselves, inoculate ourselves to violence by watching movies. Are we fascinated by violence? Is there a dark side of humanity that wants to see? That violence and one of the things that I think is painful for viewers watching the act of killing is you have also these moments of screen violence, movie violence, mm-hmm. and we're used to seeing movie violence. We know we like to watch movie violence, um, and we normally when we watch movie violence, the viol- the real world violence that is depicted isn't there. It's absent. It's fake. There's if you see a guy getting his head blown off, there was it's not a real person whose head is blown off. You never you never it has no relationship doesn't have that kind of relationship to the world. Here we watch fictional looking images of violence and the real world uh, violence that that refer that it refers to is haunting every image, and that I think makes us question ourselves as viewers. Who? Wait a minute. What are we doing by watching 
movies in general. What are we doing watching this movie? Who are we? And it's that question that I want the viewer to take away. I want the viewer to say, I, in that one moment, the split second, if it's only a split second, it's okay. But for one moment, if the viewer can see a small part of herself in Anwar Congo, the main character, a man who's killed a thousand people, inevitably in that moment, the whole edifice, the whole facade of the world being divided into good guys and bad guys has to crumble. And that's so, that's the key, that's the key moment for me, for the film, for the audience. Well, because he's anyone's nice grandfather. He really is. He could be the sweetest guy in the world if you just met him anywhere. This film, unlike most films, the, it's such a fragile thing that you're able to get to those points. And you do it so well. I mean, this has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's, it's a chance for us to see that film does not have to be the way it's always been before. It's not a history lesson. It's, it's not preachy at all. And there's, I, I can't think of another film that asks more of its audience to do its, its thinking. It's, uh, it's terrific. Uh, uh, the act of killing it opens exclusively in New York City at the landmark Sunshine Cinema today. Then it opens in L.A. and Washington, D.C. next Friday, July 26. Further rollout to follow. Go to theactofkilling.com. Head on over to Twitter to at the act of killing. Uh, Joshua, thank you so much for coming by. It was great to talk to you. And uh, I hope to see you next time coming through. So, for first responders, it's at the act of killing, at the act of killing. Um, we've got signed apocalypse. Now, there's so many different conversations that we could get into this. But I think I might want to stay with what is it that attracts us so much about violence itself because the weird thing about this is uh in terms of it it's not really a violent movie but it feels more violent than movies that we watch like a bruce willis arnold schwarzenegger violent film uh and if i were to sit down and name let's say my top 20 movies of all time most of my favorite films are violent films. So we'll open up the phones for this. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Uh, a matter of fact, we go so far in film that if it's not a violent film, we will call it a chick flick. We will act like, it. oh, I had to sit through... A chick flick last night, meaning nothing blew up, no one got shot, there was no murder to solve. This was a chick flick, as if we were forced to sit through something horrific, a movie that had to do with human beings uh, interacting with each other on a normal scale. Um, for first responders, uh, and this film is an amazing one, 
It's at the act of killing. We're giving out one of the greatest prizes we've ever given out before. Signed Apocalypse Now. A very violent film that I happen to uh, love. Here's Garth in Indiana. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, guys. Hey, uh, you know, you're talking about the fact, why do we love violence so much? I mean, think about the mortality of it and the fact that nobody can get away from death. So you say to get away from death, we like to look at even more death. Yeah, it's that, it's that almost taboo attraction to it. So the taboo, but here's the thing, there's certain, there's most taboos that we are not attracted to. As a matter of fact, that we would give an X rating to, and yet a um, killing thing is okay in this country. Jim, you're on the Run of Fest show. How are you? Comedy, comedy, we're fourth about comedy. What the fuck is wrong with you, dude? Seriously. After all these years, just give it a fucking break. It's no longer fucking... If I was where Fez was at, I would have fucking dumped out for you. Uh, hi, you're on the Ron and Fez show. Uh, yeah, hey, Ron. It's, uh, yeah, I was going to say, um, as far as... It, it's violence and guns specifically, they add a level of drama. Nothing can be more dramatic to the human psyche than a life on the line. Um, and I think as viewers, when you're watching a violent movie and you see that, it's the most dramatic thing that can possibly happen. And it kind of draws you to that because you're, you're, you're experiencing that risk without actually having that risk. But the weird thing is, what character are we relating to in any movie? We relate to the guy shooting. We never think of ourselves as, okay, here's this dramatic thing. Isn't this an awful thing? We relate to the person putting the punishment out there. Now, normally we relate to righteous punishment. In the, in the case of The Sopranos, we will relate to the bad guy. But they go out of their way to set up the world like, hey, the bad guy is in this world and there's nothing he can really do. Therefore, he's certainly not really even a uh, a bad guy. Um, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Let's go over here to Luke in Mass. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, what's going on? Um, I think, in a way, we're displaced from the horrors of life here so it is almost a natural thing where we have to be reminded that um, there is terrible things that happen i mean essentially life is taking other life and existing off of it that's I, what eating is yeah so what you're saying is really we go through we're killing something all the time food insects whatever it happens to be right and exactly. and our entertainment is just the same so you're saying it's a, it's a violent world anyway? Yeah, and that we have a natural ability to sort of have to be reminded about that. Um, because we don't have to deal with it maybe as much as some other people do around the world. All right. Here's Chris in Texas. You're on the Run of Fest show. Yeah, right. It's not even cinema, but it's like the true, true crime, like the first 48 or a documentary on... You know, the Hells Angels, it's, for me, it's fascination with a guy that's just completely willing to give up family, freedom. It, it just blows my mind what people will do, uh, it, you know, just, just to give up those little things that 
you and I kind of hold precious to us. I don't understand it. It just blows my mind that they'll pull a trigger, uh, commit a crime, and just totally not, totally disregard their freedoms, you know, for it. So you, you're actually drawn to somewhat like true crime. You're more interested in true crime than uh, a fictional piece of work. Yeah, I, I can separate the two. I mean, I, I can watch watch, watch a, a movie that's got crime in it, and it's, you know, once the movie's over, it, I, I tune it out. But the, the true true crime just completely fascinates me that people are willing to, uh, you know, just uh, give up their freedom and get locked in a cage for it. I mean, I, I can separate the two. All right, thanks, Chris. Uh, the act of killing is the first responders that we're doing today. The act of killing... Uh, what do we have for the first responders? Uh, we will be giving out a signed by Martin Sheen, Apocalypse Now. An incredibly violent film that I couldn't tell you why I'm a gigantic fan of, but I am. Uh, Godfather, another film, gigantic fan of. Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction. If I start to list my favorite films... Other than Woody Allen and Albert Brooks, I think you would be looking at some pretty violent films. The weird thing is we have so many violent films now that we don't consider violent. Like, no one will say uh, The Avengers is a violent film. But if you go back and watch that, probably hundreds if not thousands of people die in a lot of these films. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Uh, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Uh, here's David in Tennessee. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ron. Yeah, I just think it's in our DNA to take what we want violently. And we, we always have as a species. And just as early as the 1900s, we were still doing it. So we just didn't evolve as a species as quick as we had to mandate these laws. And I, I think deep down we still have those feelings. And when we see it on the screen, it, it sort of... Uh, it maybe keeps us at bay a bit, I think. So you're saying, okay, let, let me get this down, that we will kind of intellectually say, oh, these laws are good, morally say these laws are good, but deep down, who we really are, we'd really rather just end up being vigilantes and conquerors. Uh, absolutely. Just uh, 100 years ago, we were still doing it with the Cowboys and then the, the Rockefellers taking everything by force until laws stopped them and uh and we just haven't caught up with it yet it's also very interesting that we use sport and business to kind of recreate wars they are wars where no one dies but we do treat it exactly from a strategic point of view as if we were uh, killing our opponents. We want to destroy them. We want to overpower the market. Um, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Um, here's Scott in Atlanta. You're on the Run of Fez show. Ronnie B, what's up? Hey, buddy. Hey, uh, a lot of these movies you're talking about, the, the killers are the heroes. And that's the way it's portrayed as in society today, too. Look no farther than the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. A killer is a hero, and it's what we always wish to get away with. And in the movies, no matter who dies, no matter who does it, it's a hero. 
The bad guys will kill people, but the hero ends up killing the bad guy. It's all just killing. So one killer we want to call the hero, the other killer we want to call the villain. Uh, that's why a lot of guys come back from war, and we go, hey, man, you're a hero, and they're just like, shut up, I don't want to hear any of the shit that you have to say. Yeah. Uh, we were just talking about that yesterday. A lot of guys come back and cannot relate to us at all. At all. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times, um, and we see this on the in Terabang, where if something is marked disturbing, some true life thing that happened, someone fell out of a tree and snapped their head or got hit by a car, if you put disturbing up, immediately the big hits will go to that. Immediately the big hits will go to that. The act of killing, the act of killing uh, for the first responders, your opportunity to uh, pick up a film from us. And I got to tell you the truth, you first responders help us out so much. So it's so great when you take somebody like this who has a much smaller film and let them know that you've heard it on here. It's very, very helpful to the Ron and Fez show. Um, we're heading out a prize today for first responders that's signed Apocalypse Now. Um, here is over to, uh, here's Adam. Adam, you're on the Run of Fest show. Um, got me thinking, like, I don't know if you watched the movie recently. Your, your phone blows. I'm sorry, my friend. I'm, I'm going to have to drop out on you. Uh, um, no worries. Here's Mike in New York. You're on the Run of Fest show. Hey. I think uh, just in line with what you were just saying about the guys coming back from war, I mean, most people psychologically can never handle actually committing an act of violence. The violent movies is a safe psychological place for us to vent that inner stress. It, that's a very interesting point. Like, maybe this is just the best thing for us to sit down and watch something like this so that we won't form gangs and go after weak people. You know, no one ever brings that up like, hey, go to a good violent movie because that way you won't do violence. Uh, in the case of this act of killing, they actually learn a couple of blood-free ways to kill people from watching Hollywood films and uh, mafia movies in particular and start to emulate our gangster mafia guys and they bring up you know, De Niro or uh, Al Pacino uh, because of the fact that they're like, well, these guys can do it. They know what, they know how to do it properly. This Act of Killing is a stunning movie to sit down and watch. Um, here's uh, Janice in New Jersey. Uh, uh, first of all, I'm in Jersey. But listen, yeah. what I want to say is that here we are in America, and we're worried about silly things like Zimmerman and and uh, silly things, generally silly things, Obamacare. What would we do if somebody came to our house and said, because of your political views, let alone because of your religious views, we're going to kill you. You have no choice. Even if you changed our side at this point, we're going to kill you and everybody in your family. That just, that, that floors me that in our lifetime, this happened when, I, I don't even know when this went down, but I'm sure it happened within 1960s. the 1960s. In the 60s. Okay, well, that was uh, uh, Look, you want to you even closer? Syria today. 
Siri today is exactly what you're talking about. And most of those people in those camps are very similar to you and your neighbors. They're just regular people. They're not political people. I'm going to have to disagree. I'm going to bed tonight knowing that I have a bed, uh, I have a home and an oven and a refrigerator and a car to get into and a job to go to in the morning. If I don't have a job to go to, I have a government that's going to support me until I do. I I can't, I I don't mean to sound angry, but I guess I am angry. I, I just can't imagine the fear that these people go went through and are still going through today. Um, But I'm also going to tell you this, Janice. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who would tell you that you're naive because they load up their house with guns because they actually fear the U.S. government right now. All right. You know what? Quite frankly, if Mr. Anthony Cumia, if these people showed up at his house, he would take out two or three of them. He would still be dead because there would be 50 there to make sure he gets down. It's just, it's it's a scary thought that it's not even a fine line. I wouldn't even say that we're a fine line, you know, between them and us. I, I don't need, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. They and us are the same thing. I mean, when you really look at it, most people that end up in refugee camps are like you, where you're really not all that political and you're not caught up in the struggle on either side. They're the type of people who get run out of places. Uh, they are exactly the t- type of people that you'll hear about in Rwanda. Uh, I'm sure that there were tons of people in the U.S. Civil War who said, look, I got nothing to do with this shit. My name is Paul, and that's between y'all. And their farms and homes were burned down by either side. It's just something that happens. If you go back to the start of this country, they say at least two-thirds of the people didn't want to have anything to do with the Revolutionary War. The birth of this country, most of the people in the 13 colonies had no beef with the English whatsoever. We're just trying to have a farm, live a life, raise some kids. Um, this is just what happens every once in a while. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Zero fez. I wonder if we if we lived in a country that did constantly have war here, if we would still be into the violent films as much as we as much as we are. Our films play all over the world. I don't think it has to do with political reasons at all. The, the Hollywood film is bigger most of the time around the world than it is here. The Avengers makes more money outside of the United States than here. At some point, you think there's something different between us and other people, but really, we're we have more similarities. We're human beings. Um, it's very fucking strange what you know religion can do to you. But if you look at each place, most people go a different way in their religion. Uh, I was looking at this thing. It's up on the iBank today. The Westboro. Uh, church people. The Satanists went to their mother's grave, Fred Phelps's mother's grave, performed these gay acts on top of the mother's grave. One guy even put his fucking cock on the tombstone, teabagging this tombstone. When I saw the thing, I was reading it. It's up on the entire bank now. And some people were like, this is fucking great. 
That's what that bastard gets. This is how nuts we can get with this. And we honestly think the only difference, that there's some difference between one extreme and the other. But um, they are all the extremes. Uh, John, you're on the Run of Fest show. Hi, Ron. How are you today? Good, man. Um, I don't even go to any violent movies. I've just, after Vietnam, I've done two tours there, and I just... I can't bring myself to see that kind of stuff no more. And it, you know, I drank for 40 years behind this. I just three years ago quit drinking, and uh, man, I've been dealing with this crap ever since. You know, what's interesting, John, is a lot of people who've dealt with any kind of trauma will then turn around and watch these movies and go, what kind of lunatics make or watch these movies? You know? Um, you saw real violence and never went, oh, that was cool or awesome, which is the weirdness about us going to, to films and saying that's so badass when that happened. And and people just, you know, when you live through it, you just get to the point where you can't take it no more. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know, I, I guess it's just funny because I'll go to a movie with my wife, but it's got to be her kind of movie. And right. she doesn't like violence at all. And, you know, my kids was well grown before they ever knew what Dad went through. I didn't want them to know as a child. I bottled shit up for all these years. And then when I quit drinking... It all started bubbling back up, and now I'm at a point where I'm going, what the fuck do I do with this now? I'm trying to figure that one out. Have you gone and got some help for it, John? Have you talked to anybody? I recently went and talked to the BA guy, but he was in, uh, he wasn't in my war. He was in Gulf One. Right, so you didn't feel like you identified with him enough. Not really. They come home when they were celebrated. I come home and got spit on. Mm. You know, I, I hit back in the States in 68, and it wasn't a good time. Um, John, I'm sure that there are folks that you can talk to, though, particularly guys from your era as well. Well, I've been looking for that, kind of to try and find those guys in the groups, you know. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I'm sure there's some there. I just haven't really run into it. And then, on top of that, I drive a damn truck, so it's hard right. to get to a single meeting. I go to a bunch of meetings, but uh, still make that connection, you know. All right, my friend. Take care of yourself, all right? All right, but I love you guys' show. Thank you so much. Uh, here is a, so a social worker named Tim in Virginia. You're on the Run of Fest show. How you doing, Ronnie B? Yeah. Uh, I think the problem is we haven't gone past the culture of the Coliseum uh, from all those years ago. We still delight in that same carnage. Uh, so, I mean, it's not about good or bad. It's just about seeing that violent act. And part of that translates uh, to us putting ourselves in that place. Um, but but we put ourselves in the place of the guy who's who's doing the violence. Right, the winner. Yeah, it has nothing to do with uh, whether the person is good or evil. We want to be on the side of the winner. Uh, so even when we watch things like Sopranos and you know those guys, you mm -hmm. know, arguably you know some of the the scum or whatever, 
But as long as that person's not getting the X, that's the side that we want to be on. That's the side we put ourselves in. And you will actually start cheering for the sociopath. Like, please, Tony, get away from them. You know, Tony, you got to keep living. Uh, we got a piece up on the iBang, uh, a Voltaire quote that actually starts the film, The Act of Killing. And it, of course, written a long, long time ago, but it's amazing. It is forbidden to kill, therefore all murderers are punished, unless they kill in large numbers and to the sound of trumpets. Uh-huh. I think that's an amazing quote. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. And uh, Fez brought up uh, whether or not if we lived in societies that, that had the war and stuff going on. Well, the Romans very much lived in that society, and you saw how popular the Colosseum was at that time. Right, so and they could have been attacked at any time. Right, absolutely. I don't think it had anything to do with where we are. It's just in our nature to uh, kind of relish that violence and kind of uh, to want to be in that position. All right, thanks, my friend. Here's Levi in Canada. You're on the Ron Fez Show. Hey, Ron Fez. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good. Uh, I just wanted to make the point that, you know, uh, I, I just heard what your list, uh, other listener was saying regarding uh, enrollment times. And, yeah, we... People used to watch people fight to the death in uh, coliseums there. And uh, I think it's almost been modernized. But I think, uh, you know, in any, in any given situation, uh, violence can come upon us. And uh, if people are shielded from violence their whole lives, then they're almost going to be disabled and they're not going to know how to handle it. Uh, you know what I'm saying? No, I, I think that's an interesting point that you're saying we want to um, kind of have this fake heroism in our life just to make us go through it um, piece by piece, day by day. Uh, Eric in Jersey, you're on the Renafez show. Hey there, buddy. It's BAC 2406. Oh, that's old school, so you get a... So, I feel like the uh, media today really doesn't give a real accurate representation. I mean, it's either really sanitized. If you see someone get shot on primetime TV, there's very little blood. There's, there's not a ton of suffering. Or it's either cartooned with an over-the-top amount of blood to where, you know, it's not even really real or relevant. And then, you know, when you see movies that actually will put you in someone's point of view, I'm thinking of the first Halloween movie. Whose point of view do you get? You get the killer's. So they really, they really kind of glamorize it, you know, the act, but then shield us from the, the, the real gory, the horror side of watching someone actually be murdered in front of our eyes. Well, see, that's the interesting thing in um, Star Wars, where you actually see a planet blow up. Uh, when they cut off Luke's hand... There was no blood whatsoever. It was a nice, clean, you know, slightly painful thing that could happen. Even when any of the heroes died, they would actually disappear. Um, there wasn't a lot of mourning. You won't watch a, a movie, let's say a Bruce Willis movie, where he kills somebody. We're not going to watch the next scene where that person's wife or children get a phone call that this loved one has died. It's nothing. It means nothing when we kill in our movies. We never show the pain it it, it, it starts. Uh, a matter of fact, this is always really a funny thing. Um, 
in our movies, if you're going to do something nice for your friend, you knock him out or uh, so that he won't have to go to the fight with you. Forgetting the fact that when we knock people out, we could kill them. It's kind of a brain injury. Uh, Rob in North Carolina, you're on the Run of Fez show. Yes. Um, uh, talking back about the guy from Vietnam that can't relate to people because of his past experiences in Vietnam. Yeah. That's how I feel um, now. I've, I've done a tour in Iraq and two to Afghanistan. And my first time in, in Afghanistan was one giant shit fest. And now, um, being back home, uh, I kept things bottled up for two and a half years. And it's like I was living behind the mask. Like, I would go and visit family and friends and pretend like things were okay. But knowing deep down inside, they didn't know shit or understand what I was going through. Right. And this past uh, December in 2012, one day I was back in New Jersey uh, visiting family and friends, and I, I snapped and I blacked out. I wake up about 30 minutes later back in my father's driveway, and I thought I killed somebody. I snap out of it. I check. I, there's no blood on me. I call one of my buddies that has been through a similar experience, and he was like, do you hear any police sirens? And I was like, no. And he goes, at least you didn't kill anybody. And that was a turning point for me that, like, I, I need to seek some fucking help. And, and how's it been since you got the help? It's, honestly, it's been up and down. Uh -huh. Um I, uh, there, there's been days that I feel completely lost and out of touch, uh, disassociated with everybody. Um, there's days that, uh, I just wish I wasn't around anymore. There's other days that I think about, you know, uh, what am I going to do? How, how am I going to cope if I get out of the Marine Corps? Uh, what am I going to do with my life? There's cause I came, I joined during the wartime. I, I left college to join. Mm-hmm. And that's all I know. And now with the war is dying down, it's like, you know, I joined and I'm an 0311. That's an infantryman. And now with, with the wars dying down and the operational tempo dying down, it's like, well, what the fuck do you want me to do now? I've been in for nine years and it's always been trained for war, 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 fight, 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 fight. And now it's like, now it's like, whoa, slow the fuck down. And it's like, so what the fuck do you want me to do now? Ever since boot camp, it's always been trained for this, 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 and this, high speed, this, high speed, that, and now it's like, slow the fuck down. And and it and it's like when I go home and see family and friends, it's like, oh, I understand, I understand. It's like, no, you fucking don't. Yeah. There's no fucking clue. And uh, and how that Vietnam vet said that when he went to the VA and that guy was in Gulf War One, and 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 he didn't re relate to him. I understand where that Vietnam vet's coming from. Not completely because he didn't because I didn't get spit on when I came home. But there's times when I meet people that are completely against the military, and it feels like I'm getting spit on by them. Sure. And it's like, well, you know what? Go fuck yourself. If if you think you know so much, why didn't you join? And, yeah. Change something then. You are right. There are actually people that are very pro-military but don't want to hear the details or any of, like you said, the shit things that actually take place, you know? Yes. How complicated think, it can get. They think that because you're in the military, everyone has the same job, but that's not true, especially in the Marines. We all don't have the same job. Not everybody is an, an infantryman like me. Mm -hmm. You have other Marines that actually have joined and haven't done shit. They just sit around behind the desk all fucking day and push pencils, like, no shit, that's what they do their whole careers. And, and they're hailed as heroes. But they don't. They literally don't do shit. 
And sometimes that kind of pisses me off. But yes, we still need those Marines to do those jobs because I'm sure as fuck not going to type up a fucking letter. And and now and now just dealing with the shit. I'm 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 in this PTSD program now uh, in the Marines that is trying to help me get back to I guess normal and and it's helping me out and I'm very grateful for it and I'm happy I stayed in longer to get this help because if I didn't I don't know where I would be right now in my life and and there's programs out there to help people that have this condition we just have to ask for it and search for it we're not it's not going to land in our laps mm. and I think that's an issue with a lot of veterans that have been diagnosed with PTSD is that I think because at first I was expecting to just bottle it up and keep it in and and just expect it to, to go away but it doesn't it just gets worse and then we expect help to come to us but it's not. We have to find it and, and look for the help and ask for it. Because um, I'm sh- if there's any service members, especially infantrymen from the Marines that are uh, listening right now, they know the stigma of going to our what's called the BAS, a battalion aid station. And if we go and seek help for any type of injuries, mental or physical, we're seen as what's called malingerers. Like, it, it's a bad stigma to go there. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why sometimes we... We don't go and seek medical help or attention because it's a sign of weakness, apparently. And and I got over that stigma recently because I'm just like fuck that. If I'm feeling shitty, I'm going to get help. I don't I don't care what anyone thinks anymore about me because I'm sick of thinking like that. And and I think it's horseshit that that's that type of stigma being put down on Marines and soldiers and sailors and airmen that do have legitimate problems, but they won't get checked out. Because of that stigma. Well, the the only the only way to change it is like people by yourself talking about it. You know, what I mean, and saying, you know, it, it's no worse than if you had to go to the doctor for any reason. You know, yeah. guy, you know, it's like going to the dentist, something that you need to take care of. Um, and Absolutely. I think just like the dentist, it, it's going to hurt a little at first before you start being better. Absolutely. Rob, I appreciate your call so much, my friend, and I, I wish you all the best. You're welcome. Thank you. With everything. Uh, we'll talk to some amazing people, amazing people on this show. People have done stuff that most of us cannot even imagine. Uh, we heard two guys, two separate wars, talking about suffering and, and still having that courage and that power to hold on and every day try to get better. It's uh, up and above what I can even imagine most of the time. Uh, for the first responders, uh, this amazing movie is called At the Act of Killing. Really appreciate it when you tweet these people and let them know that you heard this on the show. It helps us get a lot more great people to stop by, and it starts conversations like this, uh, where you're going to hear from some of the kind of folks who um, can then express themselves to, to a nation on talk radio. It's one of my favorite things about talk radio is having the kind of calls that I could just sit and listen to for a while and um, realize that uh, this stuff doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, we got to get into a, a, a break here in a moment. We're going to come back. We'll go in a totally different direction. We're going to go into some comedy with a very, very funny woman, uh, Fez, Wanda Sykes. She's got a 
uh, a new TV special out. It's called Hilarious, and that's on Saturday night, 10 p.m., 9 central on OWN, the OWN Network. That's Wanda Sykes, Hilarious, on the OWN Network. That's with Oprah Winfrey. Of course, the OWN Network is, uh, I think, one of the bosses there is the guy who brought uh, uh, me into um, XM at that time. And uh, now, working uh, with Oprah, Elo, Elo. Uh, so we will uh, take a break here. We'll be back with the Unmasked. Thank you so much for all the first uh, responders. Just send a, a tweet to at the act of killing. Say that you heard them here on the show, at the act of killing. And, of course, second responders. We've got a great prize lined up for you. Signed. Martin Sheen. Unbelievable. Uh, we'll break. We'll be right back with our masks. It's the Ron and Fez show. Ron Bennington. Right. All right. Fez Wally. Yeah. This is the, the Ron and Fez show. It's the Hopper from Dish Network. The best DVR in the world. Do yourself a favor, people. If you love television, you want the Hopper from Dish Network. Make sure you get it because it's the only DVR with auto-hop. Auto-hop on the Hopper. This means it's going to automatically fast-forward through the commercials of your recorded programs by itself. You just When you start watching your show, you just enable the auto-hop feature... And then you put the remote away. You can throw it across the room because you're not going to need it for the rest of the show because it's going to auto-hop over all the commercials. You're not going to have to worry about fast-forwarding and stopping too late or having to go backtrack and look again at it. No, it handles it for you. It's auto-hop from Dish and the Dish Network's Hopper. You want to get this feature? You, uh, it's only on the Hopper from Dish Network. Here's the number to call. 1-800-WATCH-TV. 1-800-WATCH-TV to watch TV with the Hopper from Dish. Packages start at just $29.99. It's the Hopper from Dish Network. That number again. 1-800-WATCH-TV. Wanda Sykes. Wow, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to see you here. This is your first time up in Sirius, right? Uh, no, I've been here before. I've been oh, in Sirius been before. before. Yeah, I did, um, Howard. Oh, you did Howard mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is kind of a cool time for you because you're hooking up with Oprah on the new channel that she has. Right. Yes. Yes. I've made it. You have. I'm, I've made it. You have. Working with Oprah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem like you, this could be the new odd couple when you really think about it. <laughs> yeah. One has a lot of money. The other one doesn't. <laughs> it, it really does feel like the kid in the front of the class gets to meet the kid in the back of the class, though. You know, it seems like you finally, you uh, to me, you and Oprah might not have hung out together in high school. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't think yeah. we would have. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's been a great experience for you? It's been awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um you know, we we pitched him an idea. I, I have a, a producing partner, uh Paige Hurwood. she's also a comedian, and we 
you know, formed this production company. So we said, let's pitch something to own. And we said, hey, how about some comedy? Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, yeah. And they were like, what about all female? I said, yeah, well, we love to do that, all female comics, yeah. you know. So, um, and that's and that's what we did. And we it, basically, it was like, it, like in a couple of weeks, we were like, we really got to go shoot this show, you know? <laughs> we, for real, because it was like it was like no one was bothering us right, or yeah, asking yeah. us for stuff yeah. or it's like, are we really doing this? They, yeah. like, I haven't heard anything, not a note, nothing, you know? <laughs> and uh, next thing you know, we you know they're putting up the set and this the set looks looks great. Um, it, it doesn't even look like. Um, that's that's where they did the Oprah Winfrey show. It doesn't even look like it. Oh, it's, it's the it's, same spot. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to make it look like you know, uh, you know, very warm and and, and where the comics will feel comfortable. So it looks mm-hmm. like a like a club, like a theater. And it's it's man, it, it was it was just great. It was great. Two comics running a production company is already you know you would think there's got to be one grown up. You know? I know, I know, right? You would think, yeah. And, and, and we're so bad. We're so bad in meetings. Cause we're so honest with people. You know, I, yeah. We like we have a first look deal with um, NBC, and we went in, and, and NBC was all excited about an idea that they had, and they were pitching it to us. And we both just looked at each other, and was like, "That stinks." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "I don't want to do that shit. That's awful." <laughs> the hell thought of that and then we looked at each other like you know one of us is supposed to play the good person right, and, yeah 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 right. so yeah somebody should be like oh that maybe we can work well, with let's that think about that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, both of us are like ah get, get that crap out of here <laughs> doing that yeah <laughs> honesty works well on stage but not so much in real life not so much with the suits yeah. they don't like that they have They're, a difficult time hearing the truth yes yeah yes so you you the thing is all this came from. Having, it's been a long time since I had something in my face like this. It's, <laughs> it's Mike. Mike is, yeah. you know, just. I don't, I don't know where to position it. It's, it. It doesn't come back like riding a bicycle. Right, it's no, not the same it's, thing. It's not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I fell off of my bike a lot. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> okay, I think that feels better. And instead of just a direct, angry, and forceful. <laughs> I think I prefer it a little off to the side or something. Not, not so demanding. Yeah. <laughs> but all, all the things that ha- happen in your career all come from stand-up, right? It was all because yes. you made that first. Yes. And you you weren't one of those people who, as a kid, thought, I really want to be a stand-up. Or, or, no, yeah. no. I just wanted to be employed. You know, right. that's, and ran, yeah. you know, I, it was a, it was just a, the the normal pattern that you're supposed to do. You know, you go yeah. to college, you get your degree, and then you go, you know, get a job. And mm-hmm. in that area, I worked in, um, I worked for the government because I grew up in the Maryland D.C. area, and that's mm-hmm. pretty much what you did. You worked for the government, or you worked for a company who was a a contractor. So um, I was working for the government and for NSA, and I was like, I got to do something else. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing in my mm-hmm. life, you know. Uh, so uh, I heard about a contest, and it was a, a talent show that a radio station was hosting, mm-hmm. and um, comedy was a category. So I wrote some jokes while at work, uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> and went, you know, went down to the club. 
auditioned, got on the show, and I, then it just everything just made sense. Like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I just I think you probably have to be the only person in the history of the NSA who was writing jokes during <laughs> the national security. <laughs> For your country. <laughs> it, it was a slow time back then. <laughs> Things were quiet. Pre 9 11. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no problem. But you were naturally funny. You always knew you were funny. You made your friends laugh. You made people laugh. Right, right. Yeah. Um, made my friends laugh. Uh, as a, When I was really little, um, I just got in trouble a lot, mm -hmm. you know, because I think I had all the setups, but no punchlines, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, you know, my my mother's friend would come over and I'm looking at her and I just make an observation, you know. Right. I was like, your wig is crooked, <laughs> <laughs> but no, no punchline. <laughs> so that would just get me in trouble. Right. <laughs> so it wasn't until. Yeah. <laughs> Later, that I was able to put that little <laughs> twist were, on it. Yeah, you were like ninety-five percent. Ninety-five. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That last Almost five percent that makes everyone happy. Everyone happy. Yeah. <laughs> but your act really hasn't changed. Like one of the great things about you, and when, when I watch you work, is it does seem like a conversation. There's plenty of people where you can see the sweat that they put into their jokes. But you always feel like it's just very topical and off the top of your head. Yeah, I think it's because, you know, I, I make it easy, you know, because mm -hmm. my comedy comes from real life. You know, it's it's always something organic. If something happened, you know, in my real life or in the world, I'll take that and then, you know, put a little polish on it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's it, I think it, it, it it's just easier for me. And you don't you don't sweat it. You don't worry about new material. You know, it's going to come to you. You know, if I got to have a big show coming up and mm -hmm. and I get tired of doing, you know, doing the same jokes, I right. always want something new. So, yeah, I, I, I the, the brain starts working a little bit. And sometimes I'll I'll stretch and, and go, oh, yeah, this is then I go, that's not funny. Well, why? You know, but I, the not. last time that you did uh, the Tonight Show, which most people so worried about. Almost all the topics you brought up were like a day or two old. Right. And I'm like very few comics feel that comfortable to go out. And do stuff that I'm going to guess is fairly untested, right? On oh, it's totally untested. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so is that confidence it's or laziness? Totally. What is, which, uh, you, you know what? I'm, that, a little of both, I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah, because I'm sure like most comics, uh, they know they're going on, on the Tonight Show. They will probably work on some stuff and then go down to the club and right. try it out. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't cause any anxiety for you. Just you feel like it's gonna do well. You know? No, I. You know. Um, hey, the segment producer, he laughed when right. I was. You know, because you know you have to go through and say, okay, if Jay yeah. asked me this, I, I have this and this, and kind of you know work it out like that. But you know, we. I've I've been doing the show for so long now. We we both got a sense of right if something's funny or not. But you. But there that does come from a place of confidence, and I think mm. that's what makes somebody kind of born funny. As opposed to the comedy nerd who right. grew up studying comedy. Did but you just think about how much funnier I could be if I were a nerd? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you know what I'm saying? Just think of, if I really worked at this. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be, be carrying me around through the streets of New York. Just they'd be putting up statues. Yeah. In. If, Man. If you only gave a shit. If that's I only it. gave a shit. <laughs> Just 
winging it, winging it. Yeah. And I want to look. I'm all yeah. working with Oprah, winging it. Yeah, just winging it on your way to Oprah. Winging it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's there's a lot of that. A lot of what makes people feel comfortable is that you are comfortable, whether it works or not. There's certain people again that you see some people really performing hard, wanting to do well, and it doesn't seem. To me, that you, it matters to you that you're you're already comfortable that this is a funny thing. Well, I think that's the like a, a, a key. That's the key as far as being a successful performer. Period. Mm -hmm. If because if you're not comfortable, then the audience they're not going to be comfortable. Right. And they're not going to be able to laugh. They're just going to just worried like, oh god, this is because <laughs> it's yeah. painful to watch someone oh, yeah. who's not you know doing well on stage. Mm -hmm. It's painful. And what what keeps you from being that? Why why are you okay no matter what happens? What how does that work for you? I'm 49. <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna do? Right. Yeah, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. There is that that's help. That's help. Age definitely does help. Yeah. Age builds. Yeah. You get more confidence. I think. Right. And you know that no matter what happens, you're gonna wake up tomorrow and life goes on. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Were you aware of comedy when you were a little girl? Were there people that you watched? Yeah, I, I grew up with all those uh, variety shows. You know, we had, you know, Phil Wilson, Laughing, Smothers Brothers. Uh, you know, then like Cosby had a show. Richard Pryor had variety shows. So um, we watched all those shows. And I and one that really stuck with me was uh, Jackie Moms Mabley. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever Moms Mabley, uh, did you guys know? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Love her. So whenever... She was on, you know, I, that really resonated with me. I, 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 you know, so when people say, who's, who's your influence, I'd automatically go to her. Yeah. yeah. She was like the only black woman out there, you know, at, really doing stand up, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I know Dick Gregory, he said that in his mind, she was the first actual stand up comic, the first person who actually was on stage and like talking to the audience not like hey here's some jokes that right. you know she was actually communic you know having that one-on-one uh, -on -one with the audience and she's also if you go back and watch your stuff almost the beginning of not giving a shit exactly. you know what i mean right like, right the right. way she dressed right. The, uh, right she was never in any hurry with anything no and always came from that common sense place that i think that you have as yes well. yeah definitely. so but even seeing that you never thought oh that's a job that's something i could do one day no, I never thought of it as a job, yeah. you know. Um, I didn't, yeah, I, I never thought that, oh, I want to do that. It wasn't until later, later on, when I had to actually get a job. Right. <laughs> that I realized this is not the job I want to do. Mm -hmm. I, I need something else. And um, and there's also Whoopi Goldberg was, she she was influential, too, because I, I watched her special the, uh, the HBO one. The, it was the, amazing, uh, yeah. Around the world. And, yeah. like, no one knew her before that special, and then that special, she was a star. Doesn't right. even happen right. like that anymore. Right, right. Yeah. And that and that's when I said, oh, wait a minute. I've seen people do this. Maybe <laughs> I can do this. Right. You know, then it became tangible, because you see, oh, here's another, you know, African-American woman out here doing this. Okay, I, I think I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. So you were doing, you're working during the day, mm -hmm. going out to some clubs right. in the DC area at night. Right. How quick before you start to think to yourself, I I really am pretty good at this? It, I had to, I think I was at, like, where I had like 30 minutes solid, and then I could, I could feature, I could be the middle act right. in the club. 
you know, so I would, you know, do MC gigs and still keep my job. And then I started, you know, they promoted me up. So now I'm the feature performer. And it was then that I said, hmm, okay, I can, I can book some dates and probably cover, you know, cover my expenses doing mm-hmm. this. So that's when I, I, I left uh, NSA. How, how, like, scary was that move when you're saying I'm, I'm quitting the day job, quitting the career? Uh, it was as it was it was it was scary. It was scary, yeah. um, especially telling my parents I'm a grown woman. Still, you know, <laughs> I was like 29 or whatever, 28, but still having to tell my parents. Remember that college thing you paid for? <laughs> I'm not gonna do that anymore. Yeah. I'm gonna go out and do comedy. <laughs> you know, my parents they they just looked at me like I was crazy. Like they had no idea what you know what. First of all, what a comic is. You know, it would have been better if I would have said, I'm going to become a preacher. Right. They would have been like, oh, well, yeah. amen. <laughs> amen. Yeah. You know. And in a lot of ways, it's the same work. It you is. Know? It is. It the is. Same work. It's the same work. Uh, yeah. But to do that, the, the strange thing about it is no one has any idea where their career is going to go. Where if you have a government job, you can follow this, this, you'll know mm-hmm. where you'll end up, you'll retire at a certain age. Right. But when you go out on the road, there's no way to predict who gets to get over. Oh, there's, th- yeah. it's totally unpredictable. You're yeah. right. It's it's about time, place, and uh, you know, and and of course talent. But you never know. You know. Yeah. But here's the thing, and this is and this is what I I I, I tell you know, especially young people too, and, and you know, anyone. Um, it's it really winning in life is really about when you can have a job that you enjoy doing mm-hmm. when you, you know, it's your, your passion, you know, it's like you can go, okay, I'm going to get, get this job because this career makes a lot of money. You're never going to be happy. But if you find a career that you like, then then you'll, then the money will come, you know? So, and that's, and that's how I felt. I felt like I do comedy. Even if I don't, even if I make half of what I was making in a say, I'm still going to be happier because I'm doing what I love. Yeah. And, and and also, uh, if it doesn't work out, what the hell? I can always go back to NSA. You know, uh, it's not like all of a sudden I'm, I'm now I'm unemployable. You mm-hmm. know, so uh, yeah, to me it was a, a easy uh, easy decision. This NSA thing is not as formal as I thought before <laughs> we started this. You can leave for a while. You can come back. <laughs> you can write jokes at work. <laughs> <laughs> You ever use you, it was it was a nice time there. It yeah. was cool. Did you ever use your NSA time to check on old friends or just see what people are up to? Oh, she got married. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so you're out on the road now, you're making money as a comic, as a feature. What became the break for you? What was the chance for you to say, Wow, this is now I've kind of moved from the clubs into show business a little bit. I would say uh, the Chris Rock show. Yeah. Yeah. When, when Chris got the HBO show and they called me and said, hey, you know, you want to submit some writing samples. I was like, yeah, sure. So I did and got the job. And I think that's that was the that was the change. That was the shift. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because here's this guy who's actually made it. Mm-hmm. He's on top of the world, particularly at that time. Yeah, that, that was special. after Bring the Pain. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. after that special, there was like, oh, there is another George Carlin. There is another Richard Pryor. Right. And he's right there in that in that spot. And for a guy like that to look over and go, oh, yeah, she's she's funny, too. Mm-hmm. That had to be amazing for, right. for you. Right, right. 
and and the that staff. I mean, Louis C.K. was on this, you know, yeah. staff too. I mean, it was it was just it. it we, we were like the little rascals and and just putting on a show. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And everybody, you know, kind of blossomed out of that. Show. Right. What what again comes with one of those things of letting the comic run the thing based on comedy, rather than a network looking over whatever these research things that they have. Right. Exactly. Uh, how was it for you writing, though, instead of just talking to an audience? Was that more difficult? or? Well, it, it was difficult, but but not um, difficult, but fulfilling because you're writing for Chris Rock, you know? Yeah. So if you write something and Chris Rock says it and, it's, and it gets a laugh, you're like, yeah, I did that. You know, yeah. you feel great. Um, there were a lot of times I would write a joke and go, sure, I'm keeping that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny. <laughs> my joke right <laughs> so he was getting your second best material <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's great well because also hey, girls gotta eat yeah know? right so but while while you have the day job with the you're still out doing stand-up the whole time you it it did not cut into your schedule um, you were able to I, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't able to go up as much. Yeah. On stage as much, but you know, you're in New York, so yeah. So we would work in the office, you know, during the day, and then that night I would go do a spot here and there, you know, comedy cellar or comedy right. strip, and uh, yeah. So it was. You still had to. I still had to work that muscle, even though I was writing. That had to be a really exciting time for you too. Now, I mean, to have that dream, and suddenly you're in New York City. You're writing for the best comic at the time. And being able to do stand up here. Right. It's about three different dreams happening yes. at the same time. Yes. Um yes. so what happened after that show? That had to Um uh, after that show I started getting um in front of the camera. Right. And it was and it was basically a budget thing. Mm -hmm. I'm serious. We were really because I'm saying we were just putting together a show. So if we had a camera crew and we were already shooting one bit and if we got, you know, that wrapped up a little earlier and we still had time left with the crew. You know, we would say, what you, what you got? What you got? You know, who, who has a bit? And if it was something that we could really shoot quickly and, you know, hey, let's do it. And we have time to cast it. So uh, one, one of the guys that were writing team, they came up with this this bit of uh, video mama. Mm -hmm. And it was basically just a, a, a tape you put in and this when the woman comes up and watches your kids, basically yells <laughs> at your kids. <laughs> so. And they said, Wanda, you 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 can do it. Be be video mom. I was like, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yeah. So, you know, we shot it, we, you know, aired it and uh the audience they, you know, went nuts, started laughing and also then everybody wanted to put me in their bits. So that's how I got in front of the camera. And then from there, um Eddie Murphy, he watched, you know, he's right. a good friend with Chris, fan of show. So he noticed me, and that's how I got in Nutty Professor too. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy, yeah, right? I know. And then Chris was doing movies. You know, uh, I did Pootie Tang, and uh, yeah, <laughs> Pootie Tang right. got an applause. All right, weed smokers. All yeah. right, all right. <laughs> uh, and then um, 
And from there, what else? Uh, then Chris was doing Down to Earth, and the, the White's brothers, they directed, and they were like, hey, you know, yeah. And Chris was like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, so Wanda was in that movie, too. All this uh, is happening yeah. without auditioning. Everyone else I goes to hell. I at auditioning. <laughs> I, if I auditioned to play me, I wouldn't get the part. <laughs> I hate auditioning. I just, I've had, I've had casting agents actually snatch the script out of my hand <laughs> while I'm auditioning. Like, I'm like, and no, I would not like a, thank you, that's, that's, that will be all, okay, exactly what I deserve, all right. But, so the reason why you got it, because you were just there, the fact that you had got in that door, right. was really the audition mm -hmm. to prove that you were funny, right. and I remember this, those video segments is the first time that I started to see you, even before I saw you do stand-up. I remember this bit that you did about Patrick Ewing that I thought was like, it was about the size of his penis. You claimed that you were with him. And I'll just say this. You said there was a knot on the end of it. And I, it was one of those times that I'm like, this is so funny. And who the hell is this person? Because at the time, I didn't even know whether it even happened or not. Yeah, that was, that was on a Tonight Show, because I remember yeah. Jay got up, and, and he left his seat. He jumped up and yeah. like was laughing. But uh, Yeah, I was, I was talking about his knees were bad, <laughs> Yeah, because it was during the playoffs or right. something. I was like, I said, you know, his knees are bad. I said, imagine what his, you know, his, his penis must be like. <laughs> I was like, he's got a knot, yeah. But, you, but it was always so funny, and uh, it, it felt comfortable and daring at the same time. And that's once you got there, it seems like that was okay. you were being invited anywhere, particularly when it came to sports stuff and people were comfortable. Yeah, I, I love sports. I yeah. love sports. Um, I had a great run on Inside the NFL. Yeah, we went, we went like four Emmys on that show uh, yeah. from doing pieces, you know, for that for that show. And again, that's one that you didn't audition for. You nope. That was that was right place, right time. My friend yeah. Lance Crowther, who's also a writer on uh, on uh, Chris Rock show and plays Pootie Tang, mm -hmm. um, he was working on the Bob Costas uh, show, and when he was on a sports show for HBO, and uh, they had a rap party, open bar. Wanda's going. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what do you mean, my friend? You're yeah. invited to a rap party with free drinks, and I'm not going. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> so I went with him to this rap party and, uh, you know, of course, enjoyed the, uh, the, the free drinks, the open bar. And there's Bob Costa sitting over there. And I just went up and started just... Pretty much berating Bob, I think, you know. I just was telling him, I said, look, I'm a fan, but you're, you're, you're a little annoying after a while. I said, why? You, you know every damn thing. You know, that, that, that bugs people sometimes. It's the know-it-all, you know. Yeah. I just was like, letting them, just really letting them have it. And I said, I tell you what, do me a favor. Next time someone asks you something, just say, you know, I'm not sure about that. I said, just, just switch it up every now and then. Or just, or just a simple yes or no. Don't, don't go back to the history of Mickey Mantle and everybody. Nobody cares. Stop that. You know, so we, we went through all this and, uh, and Bob Costas would turn to the executive producer. His exact producer, I say, who the hell is this woman? Yeah. And I want her on the show, you know, so that's how I ended up on Inside the NFL. That's amazing. It's really amazing. Alcohol gets you places. It really. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
No one ever says that to the kids. No one ever says See, make- I, see I, give, I give the kids the truth. Little, you know, yeah. a little too much. A little too much truth sometimes. But d- did it start to dawn on you, hey, this is turning into a career? Or did it just feel like it's just one thing happening to the next? Um, Yeah, I, it really, I'm just enjoying the ride, you know? Yeah. Just enjoying the moment. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was like, okay, this is my career. It's what I'm doing. Right. But there, there wasn't a moment when I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop doing stand up and now this is my career. Right. TVs. I, I've never had that, never had that thought. And if you had the thought of, if I do this, maybe that'll get me that, or you just take them as they come. I really wish I could tell you that I, I planned my life out like that. <laughs> yeah. But it just happens. Yeah. Yeah, everything guidance counselors told us is a lie. I'm finding out <laughs> today. This is really, really amazing. When you, I don't know how often you sit back to think about it, but most people don't get these kind of opportunities. Oh, of course not. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm well aware right. of what's happening. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I know what's happening, but I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not guiding this at all. No. Not guiding I, it even no, slightly. No, no. Only thing I do is say yes or no if I if I want to do a project or not. But if something, yeah. Larry uh, Larry David, Kirby enthusiast. Yeah. A friend uh, was who produced one of Chris's HBO specials. She may have may have been uh, Bring the Pain. Sandy Chanley. She was a, a producer on Kirby Enthusiasm, and I was at that time working on. Uh, it, it was a it was a, a a failed show, but it was I was honored because Steve Martin was trying to do a, a show and he asked me to be mm-hmm. a cast member. So I'm working on that, and Sandy is shooting a curb across the across the street from uh, where I'm where my office was, and she said, "Come over, I want you to meet Larry." I said, "Look, I'm not auditioning." You know, I said, you know, I don't audition because I suck at it. I said, I, I don't want to, you know, bomb in front of Larry David. She said, no, he just wants to meet you. I said, OK. So I went over. They were shooting at a car dealership. So I go over and I see there's some other black women sitting in the in the in the lounge area. I was like, hey, this is an audition. I, I know an audition when I see an audition. Well, I'm sure it's not, you know, black lady by a Honda day today. What's all these sisters doing in here? What the hell? And she said, no, no, no. They, they, they're auditioning. You're just going to meet Larry. Right. Okay, so I walk in, right, and there's Larry, and Larry's like, "Hey, why you don't want?" He's okay. Look, so this is the situation. Um, I'm you're walking down the street, and I turn to my friend. I was like, "I'm gonna whoop your ass. I'm so I'm gonna beat the. Ooh, I'm gonna beat you." So, uh, she he said, "Here's the situation. You're um you're 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 out going for a walk, and I'm gonna drive by, and I say, "Hey, I know that tush anywhere." And I, and I looked at him, I said, well, why in the hell would you say something like that? And then he started laughing. I was like, no, for real. And, and what, what, you just been studying my ass? How would you know my tush? And then he just started laughing and said, you know what? You, you have the job. <laughs> what? I auditioned. So, yeah, so that's how, that's how I got curbed. And most of those things have to do, I guess, with some kind of chemistry. I mean, you could be funny, but not fit, yet you've... Something about your career, you just tend to fit in a lot of places. Yeah, that yeah. that seems to happen. Yeah. Right. You don't feel any sense of when I go on curb, I want to make sure that I'm funny, or you're just playing it so that the whole situation is funny. Oh, of course, I want to be funny. Yeah. You know, I I definitely want to be funny, but 
I want I want it to feel uh real. I don't want to feel like hey yeah. that hey now I'm going to do my jokes, you know. <laughs> right. it's, it's you wanted to to be a part of the show and still carry the story forward, you mm-hmm. know. Um so I, I try to you know, I just try to do that. That's just like you don't need a you don't need a lot, especially mm-hmm. on a show like her. Just the you know, you get one good line in there then, you know, let's yeah. keep it moving. And that's one of those shows that's so quotable that people come back and watch those shows over and over. Mm-hmm. How, how does Larry pull that off? How is he able to put together a show like that? So many people. I know. He's he's, he's a genius. He mm-hmm. really is. He, he really is a, a genius. He comes up with these great stories and then he knows who to, you know, put in, into place, into the place to help him accomplish what he's he's trying to do. But, you know, it, it, there's part of me that I go, I love this show, and I'm so happy that, you know, I'm I'm a part of it. But then I go, I'm working with Larry David, who, you know, wrote one of the best sitcoms ever, you know, yeah. Seinfeld. And then I get to work with him, but I got to make up my own shit. What the, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Jerry never had to Jerry do that. Jerry never had to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Kramer would have just stood there all day. Yeah, 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 right, right. He struggles when it's yeah, time right. to make up your own yeah, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But genius is something that you keep bumping up again. I mean, really comedic geniuses over and over. You find yourself working with. Yeah. Yes. And again, the fear factor isn't there for you. You're just, you're pretty comfortable with. Do you ever feel anxiety about any of these performances? Uh, the first time I felt anxiety, I shouldn't say the first time. There's always, there's always anxiety. Every time mm-hmm. I, before I go on, go on stage, even if it's, you know, it's my show doing stand up. there's always those, those butterflies because you never know, you know, it's, yeah. it's live and, you know, I mean, it's even something, something simple as what if I have to pee in the middle of the show, you know, it could yeah. be anything, you're just anxious. So I, but the first time I like for a job, when I went to work, like, oh, geez, well, it was, uh, for the first day of shooting at a uh, monster in law. Mm-hmm. Because you know it's Jane Fonda. Yeah, I work with Jane Fonda. This is her first movie back. You know, and uh, and I, I I was like, what the hell are they thinking? <laughs> putting me next to Jane Fonda. Yeah, these people must be high. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but Jane, from the day one, as soon as I sat down, you know, next to her, she was like, hi Wanda, I'm Jane. I'm so excited to be working with you. Blah blah blah, and she, uh, just put me at ease. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you you you're going to feel the fear, but then you walk through it. You get right. past it mm-hmm. every single time. Right. Is there anything left that you would be intimidated about doing, and and maybe not feel like you're ready for? Uh, skydiving. No, yeah. Uh, no. Um, I don't think I would want to direct. It's it's but yeah, I don't think that's something that I I don't think I'd be I'd be good at it. Yeah. I like telling the director what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy that. See, I, I think I, 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 yeah, I would director. agree with you because the director is a kind of I do give a shit person. Right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, me, yeah. yeah. Me, I like put the camera over there. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Shoot for 50 ah, minutes. Over there. Probably yeah. good. Yeah, 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 right. I think we got it. Yeah. <laughs> huh? <laughs> the, uh, the, the thing about stand-up is it's tough for everybody. Is it more difficult going out on the road as a woman when you're when you're younger and you're out there and having to win over these bars full of drunks? Yeah, it yeah. is. It is. Um, 
And not, but there, there's safety issues and also just the, you know, just getting there, the travel alone. Right. You know, there were some nights, you know, I'm I'm lost, you know, around Roanoke, Virginia somewhere and, you know, in the hills of West Virginia or something. And I'm, I'm you're, you know, trying to find a club, you know, because back then, you know, we just had maps. You know, we, had, we had the Thomas guy and a map. That's it. You had to plot that out yourself, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there were, there were some, some scary nights, you know, just trying to get to the place. And, but none of that stuff turned you back. You, you thought, even though this is the, and people don't realize just waiting for shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had a half an hour that you said that you had down, which means you've got 23 and a half hours a day that you're not doing <laughs> your job, you know, and you're just waiting most right. of the time. Right. Right. So none of those times did, did were you sitting in West Virginia? Thinking this isn't leading to anything. This can't be taking me to show business. Um, we, you know, comics. You, you know, we watch a lot of bad TV. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in a crappy hotel. Uh, you eat bad food, and yeah, you, you are thinking about it. Like, boy, this really? I'm just sitting around here. But like you said, you know, the show's not yeah. till. But then, you know, that's why naps are, are right. That's why that's where you go, like, take a nap. I need to sleep on this. I need to sleep on this. So drinking, sleeping, yes. so many of the latter the success mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, uh, unlike a lot of comics, you will come out for political reasons. And a mm-hmm. lot of comics fear that. What, what got you into talking uh, and being involved in some causes? Uh, I've always enjoyed politics. Mm-hmm. Um I like talking about politics. So if, you know, that's, it's real for me. So it's not like, you know, I, I pick a cause and say, this is what I'm, you know, I have to be, it has to be something I, I really am uh, for or into. And that's what I like to talk about. Well, the kind of the problem for having a career with that is most issues in this country seem to be about 50 50. Right. So when you pick a cause you believe in, Half the people are pissed off at you. Mm-hmm. Incredibly pissed off at you. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've had some nasty things yeah. said to me and all. But, I mean, what, so what am I supposed to do? Not talk about things that mm-hmm. I, I care about or... And not only I just care about, but I find funny. So if I... <laughs> if, yeah, so it's not like I'm just up there running my mouth and not being funny. It's right. it's, it's still... the I want to make people laugh, mm-hmm. you know? So, and, and I mean, Carlin, I mean, I, he's my, one of my idols, you know, Car- Car- Carlin and, and Pryor. And these guys, they talked about stuff. And I think that's what, for me, that's what I'm supposed to do is to, yeah. yeah. But it will kind of hurt you in terms of being more mass appeal, I guess. I always remember Michael Jordan said, when they asked him to get involved in something, he said Republicans wear sneakers, too. Right. <laughs> and there were uh, a lot of guys who came before him that were upset with that, mm-hmm. you know, because Kareem and Jim Brown and those guys made sure that he could sell sneakers. Right. And then he was like, yeah, thanks, but mm-hmm. I'm selling sneakers now. Right. Uh, that kind of stuff doesn't bother you. I could be losing people. Um, No, I, I, mm. I don't think of it like that because I mean, I have I have enough. You know, right. it's, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't need an arena. I don't need to yeah. sell out in an arena. But you don't look around and go, boy, I could use some Mormons. I could really, <laughs> <laughs> be really helpful to have Mormons in this audience. You know what I would like? More Asians. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get a lot of Asians. That bothers me. What have I done to the Asians? <laughs> 
I was looking around hoping we had at least one I, I, Asian. I, that's why. That's what I'm saying. Please, not one. Please have an okay, Asian. Somebody help at least squint. Come on, something. Make me. Maybe you think that's why I don't. Yeah, that Asians. might be one of the that's reasons that you really feel like it just comes down. Ah, uh, sorry, Asians. Yeah. I'll get you one day. So uh, you now that you have a production company. Uh, as sitcoms, is it movies? What are you What are you hoping to do in the future? Just comedy, funny yeah. comedy. We're we're open to like at, at NBC. It's it's for a uh, uh, unscripted or non scripted, so uh, like reality type shows. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we have with NBC. But yeah, we're we're looking. You know, and this is sitcoms you. and everything. This uh, is you, n- no, other people. not necessarily. Yeah. I might have some involvement, but not necessarily. I think it's uh, fascinating because if you look back, I'm sure for you it feels like a climb. But when, from my point of view, it looks like all this stuff is taking place pretty fast. That you could go from doing stand-up to writing for Chris to having a production company and being in movies and, and TV shows. Well, I, I started in 87, so... That's yeah. a slow climb. It is. It, yeah. you, it, well, I guess because most of us don't get to see it until uh-huh. you got over a, a certain hump. So right. You had how many years before you felt like people knew who you were or what you were doing? Um, let me see. 87. Chris was in t- like, what, 2000. So I think probably like in. Uh, I say 2003. Wow. I think it's when people. When I, you know, like, hey, okay, who, who is this? You know, yeah. I know her. Yeah. There's not too many jobs, is there? There's not too many careers if you tell people, by the way, in 15 years, you'll start. <laughs> this is going to work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, just stay with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a 15-year college for someone. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Uh, I, I love the fact, though, that it seems like it's just as much fun, even when you weren't doing well, as where you are right now. Yes, that's true. I mean, of course, it's it's more fun now because you know mm-hmm. I I fly first class, I stay in nice hotels, so yeah. it's it's much more fun now. Well, I should say more comfortable, right? Yeah, but uh, it's still the same job, you know, on stage and making people laugh. So it's still as much fun. Yeah. And you say it's always no matter what position you get, even if you're asked to do a charity or or you're asked to speak. Politically, it's still about making people laugh first yes. and foremost. Yes, true. And, and I, I, I want to do charity events. Yeah. You know, I, 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 when they, when I get the offer, if, if I'm available, I, I do the charity events. But some charities, it's hard to mix with comedy. Right. You know. Yeah. It was like a domestic violence charity, <laughs> and they wanted and they asked me to do some comedy. I'm like. <laughs> What? What? No, domestic violence is not funny. You can't do, you know, and I think I even made a joke. I said, uh, I said, you know, I'm having a hard time putting this together, you know, because it's I mean, what I mean, uh, what you think before uh, he he beats her? She's going to say, hey, I got a riddle, you know. uh, (laughs) (laughs) So that'll be one of the reasons you're like, you just really don't need me. Right. At this event. There is things because one of the mistakes too I think that a comic can make when he's like, No, sir, this is serious. 
shut up, everyone. I'm being serious right now. That starts to pull the magic away. Right. A little bit. Right. Uh, and you never take the, you never lose that sense of fun. If you're doing like when the Prop 8 stuff come up, you didn't mm -hmm. get so angry that you felt like you wanted to be serious about it. You still were able to stay in the comedy pocket with it. It was hard, but yeah. yes, yes. I, you just and because that's how you get the message across. I think you know yeah. it's it's being because they expect me to be funny. So if I can find a way to do to be funny and but also make my point, mm -hmm. then that helps. And it also helps you know people you know at least start talking about it. Right. Yeah. So I know when the whole prop eight thing. My my big thing was you know like you know uh you know like why 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 do you care. And I said, do you know how many people got married uh, yesterday? And across the audience was saying, I said, neither do I. And I don't give a fuck. Why do you? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, why? Why do you care? <laughs> <laughs> What's amazing about that cause, and it rarely happens, is that it actually got turned around mm -hmm. and winning now. Right. Uh, across right. the board. It's amazing yes. to see that happen. Yes. Uh, and most people get so frustrated, don't realize it's fairly quick before let's organize and you know martin luther king didn't have things rolling that quickly oh that's for sure it took him. gandhi struggled for a long time you know right yeah but i think because of social media people think things aren't changing fast, fast enough. enough yeah a little spoiled yeah when things go faster and the political stuff always takes a long time it always takes right the politicians are in the way well you That's got <laughs> slowing everything up yeah you got that's true. You have politicians and then also the elderly vote. And they're the hardest ones ever to say, hey, here's a new idea. You know, because if you're 85, what do you give a shit about a new idea? Right. Coming right. on progress. What do you care? You want everything to go back the way it was before. I think it's amazing how you're able to balance it all, though. I really Thank do. You. I, I have some. I have a, a nice group of uh, a, a section of of older the elderly. Artists. Do you? Yeah, I've, I've got like eighty some year old people come to my shows, and they're right there. And uh, but yeah, I think I think it's more like a, a regional. I would say more regional thing. So you know, when you go into certain regions, you're more likely to get. All right. So what's your New York City audience like? What would you say oh, if you're working New York? Um, it's a little bit of everyone. You know? Yeah. yeah. Nice, nice mix. Uh, even I, I would say they skew a little younger. Maybe not, you know. Mm -hmm. Maybe not as old as as what I would get in, like, say, Minnesota, right? Somewhere, you know. <laughs> yeah, because you know, there's there's a lot to do here in New York. Yeah, you you have a lot to choose from. In Minnesota, eh, do I want to go see something or not? <laughs> Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Yeah. We're outside the I house. I like getting dressed. Yeah. Why not? I think it's amazing to draw in Minnesota, though. That's mm -hmm. got to feel terrific, particularly someplace you've never been before. Right. You go out, and there these people are not going out for comedy, but going right. out for you. Right. That's when it really has got to feel good. Mm -hmm. It does. Great. It does. Uh, I told these people we would... Uh, Give them a, a chance. They were a little timid, so I'm hoping some more people jump up with questions. But this gentleman wants to uh, ask one here. Even though he didn't wear any socks today, he really wants <laughs> He's dying it's to... It's hot, man. Yeah, it, it is. is hot. It's insanely hot. Hey, Wanda, what's going on? I'm hey. Dave. Hi, um, Dave. Uh, my question for you is, you have a very distinct voice in comedy, and uh, I know that is crafted through stand-up. 
when you go to scripted work uh, in sitcoms like Old Christine or movies like Monster in Law, how much are you allowed to be yourself and how much is it what's on the page? Uh well, Dave, it, <laughs> you know, when when they write the character, Wanda, they pretty much want me to show up. Um, and yeah, I, and I'm aware of that, too. So I, I'm like, I'm just like monster-in-law. You know, I, I wanted to not be Wanda, but then they would say, hey, can you add a little something here? Can you ad-lib a little bit? And you bring us... so. I know why people hire me and what they want, so I try to give them that. But I also try to uh, stay true to the to the script because I, you know, I appreciate writing. So I, yeah, so it's like I give them what's on the page, and then I add a little something, a little seasoning. <laughs> Do you feel like they're writing for you now, though? Does somebody say I'm going to write this? And- oh, when people write for me, it gets very offensive. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> When I see what they hear on paper, I'm like, what the hell? And, but then I see that's exactly what's on the page. What the hell? Hey, what the hell? <laughs> so they they write for you, they assume somewhat sassy. sassy. Yeah, and that's when I, that's when yeah. that drives me nuts. So it's like, just write it and let me, I'll, I'll add the, yeah. the little extra stuff on but it. you don't have that thing to go serious the you know the lifetime movie where you're a coke addict mom that's trying to get her life back together I don't think I want to play that <laughs> it would be funny right it would be people would laugh or you know they would you you know right you're sitting there watching this this lady strung out on coke living on the streets and you'd be like this is the funniest cokehead I have ever seen alright over here oh, hi my name is Todd um, I just want to thank you for being a part of the LGBT community um, that means a lot to me as someone that's also in it um, I actually have two questions so I'm going to try to combine them into one okay. so um, someone your age how do you deal with Twitter and also how did you get casted on Old Christine because I, I know you as Wanda but I think because it's on every night now I know you as Barb Okay. so I just want to know how did you like kind of get started with that Thank you. Um, let me see. With with Twitter, uh, as an older person, I know it's what you're trying to say, Todd. <laughs> uh, my feelings, they all heard. It, it was yeah. very gentle, g- gently how you put, put it. I like that. Um, yeah, I... I, I couldn't couldn't resist. It was like, you know, people just kept saying, you got to get on Twitter. You got to get on Twitter. You got to do the social media thing. And... I so I get it that it's it's a it's a great tool, especially to for, to promote. But also as a comic, um, something will come up, and it's so in the moment that it's not a joke that I probably could use on stage right. or wait for a show. So I love being able to just go boom 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 and get it out there and and just getting the response back of people saying you know they laughing or you know but you will go hey is this for the stage every time like am i giving away the good stuff here or um not yeah i don't analyze it that that much because it's usually something so fast that it's like okay boom and i put it out there um and as as far as someone my age i just use a larger font Uh, a lot of a lot of and, people have gotten in trouble over Twitter stuff. A lot of people have gotten yes. in trouble though, right? Because it's just a quick joke, and you and know. sometimes you can 
phrase things yeah. that people they you know misconstrue and you're like oh man no that's not what i meant yeah. y'all come on you know so it's yeah and that's, sometimes that's this hard. is exactly what you meant but you were drunk that too <laughs> yeah that too you're not always that in the too. stage and yeah, the and other part barb, was, yeah for barb uh yeah. yeah i i love uh i love playing that character and i was really sad when the show you know went away but um you know, it, it was it was a great time, and I'm glad you still appreciate it and can still watch it. Yeah, yeah, but it was fun. I mean, Julia and that whole cast was just incredible. Yeah, and the writing was just insane. It's good. One yeah. of those times again that you get to work with the really best people just seems to happen. Yeah, just seems to happen. Maybe I see what Paulie Shaw is up to. <laughs> <laughs> just to just to give it a shot. <laughs> He's ready. He Why not? He'll be glad to get that call. All right, over here. Hi, Wanda. I'm DA. Hi, and DA. I've, I've loved your works for a very long time. Um, I was really sad to see the Wanda Sykes show go off the air. Um, could you talk a little bit about what happened and, you know, why Fox decided that it wasn't, you know, something that they wanted to continue to? Um, let me see. How, where, where should I start with what happened with that show? Um, we had a cool idea, and actually Fox came to me to to do the show. I didn't go to them and say, hey, I want to come on your network and do a talk show. They, We would like for you to do a talk show. I was like, uh, I don't know, guys. And they said, well, you can do whatever you want. I've heard this before. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're serious. We want you to, you know, just do something different. Do whatever you want to do. I'm like, okay, all right. So, uh, and at the same time, I was still doing... Uh, the new adventures of old Christine. So now I'm thinking, how am I going to do both of these shows? Um, I, I think I, I just bit off a little bit too much at that time, you know, and then plus, you know, just had, had kids, you know, so I had twins at home. And so it was just a lot going on. Uh, very stressful. Uh, I'm, I'm happy with the show. I thought we, we did a, we did a really good job. I thought the show was funny. Um, yeah, there was some things that we needed to, to, to tweak. And hopefully, I was hoping that they would give us more episodes and then we could go back and fix those things. But they, I think they were just so, um, one of the executives, he, he just wasn't happy that he, that, that we would tell him his had bad ideas, basically. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like he had one idea, why we put a rug down? I was like, we, really? <laughs> we're sitting there trying to get, a, get the show together we're shooting it like in two hours and you said well, a rug <laughs> <laughs> and i kind of told him where to put his rug yeah so. right <laughs> so we i think it was more of a it, it was it turned into a pissing contest basically i think uh but the amazing thing is a lot of these things come and go but the consistency of your your comedy has been there all the time on i think it's just amazing so great to have you sit in here and talk oh, with us enjoyed today. enjoyed it. Loved it. And uh, everybody, Wanda Sykes. Thank you. Around.